Well, Kevin, we have done it again. Another one bites the dust. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so we are still currently working on the studio. This one's from the garage once again. Hopefully the last. That's not a promise. Follow us on Instagram at Mission Prep Podcast. Also follow us on Facebook. I don't use it as much, but we do have a page there. Um, Yeah. So please follow, subscribe, give us a rating on all podcast platforms. That's very helpful to us. And also tell people about the podcast. Best thing you can do for us. Just keep telling people and we hope you guys are enjoying listening. So what do you have to say, Kevin? Push the button. (laughs) All right. I'm going to push the button. That, ladies and gentlemen, is technology. (laughs) Anyways, um, so our guest we have coming up today, his name is Morgan Hill. Tell us about him, Kevin. He's a captain in the Idaho Air National Guard. Um, He is a bassist in Another Life in the Block Inferno. He is a new dad. Um, he's also in the physics program at Boise State University and much more. All around pretty cool guy and interesting guy. Had a lot of interesting things to talk about, so we hope you guys feel the same way. Yep, he fucks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he'd want us to leave that in there or not, but I guess we're going to have to. <laughs> Let's get into it. So, Morgan is your name? <laughs> yes. Uh, let's start with where are you from originally? Yeah, so originally I'm from the uh, island of Curacao. It's a Dutch island, and it's it's about 40 miles off of Venezuelan coast. So you look at Aruba. Uh, most people have heard about Aruba. Uh, Bonaire and Curacao is right there. And pretty interesting history about the island. It's been invaded by the Spaniards the Portuguese, the Dutch, and as a result, and, and of course, when you think about the fact that, you know, that area was pretty uh, significant to the slave trade back in the day. So because of that, we've developed our own language and we also speak Spanish and Dutch. Oh, wow. And they speak English. So like <laughs> at minimum, most people there speak like, you know, three languages. Wow. Most people speak four or five. So you, you say you were born there? I was, and I came to the United States, uh, South Florida, when I was eight years old. That's probably a crazy transition going. It wasn't because South Florida, it's practically like living in the Caribbean. Okay. okay. So like all the people I was used to growing up with, those cultures are, they're very prevalent in South Florida. What was a huge, a really, I should say culture shock is when I went to college the first time in Daytona Beach. And as soon as you get above Orlando, Florida is when you culturally step into the United States, <laughs> Yeah, you know? And um, so Daytona Beach was my first exposure to, you know, people from a lot of other parts of America. And that was really amazing, I think. And you're kind of like a fish out of water mm-hmm. situation there. And it wasn't until I met my wife 
on MySpace of all things. It was a totally <laughs> accidental meeting. Yeah. Yeah. Totally accidental. It wasn't until then that um, you know, I visited Idaho at the time because she she was going to Boise State and I really, really liked it here. Mm-hmm. You know, for one thing, uh, people here are nice. Uh, the quality of living is better. Mm-hmm. At the time, the qual- the cost of living was lower. And I visited twice, and it was kind of a no-brainer. Because she was thinking of settling down in Florida in Daytona Beach. And I'm like, hell no, that's not, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's not a good idea. Not after I've seen Idaho. And I'm sure, like, you know, we look at all the stuff that's happened over the last few years where people have moved here, they mm-hmm. see Idaho, and I totally get it. Yeah. yeah you know, both but, me and Kevin are born and raised here. Yeah. And I've always told people, because there's some, like, old-school Idahoans that hate that people are coming here and stuff, and I'm like, I like living here. Why wouldn't they want to live here? Yeah. You can't look down on someone for wanting a nice place to live mm-hmm. and yeah. have their family. Yeah. You know, the Northwest in general, I think, is better in a lot of ways. But I've been I've been in really awesome places in Alabama and Georgia too yeah. that are really beautiful. But I think it's because you have the mix of being in a nice looking place with mountains with the culture that goes right. around that. You know, if you want to go mountain biking, hiking, do whatever you want to do. I mean, you have pretty much you're open to everything, hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's the environment as a whole is really well rounded. You know. Yeah. So when did you? Move? What year was it? You came to Idaho? Uh, Two thousand eight. Uh, August 2008 specifically. So you've seen some change here then? Oh, yeah. Yeah, big time. Yeah, the last, I I would say, starting with 2012 up to 2016, I would say was the most exponential increase that, you know, you see in just population, diversity, the economy as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some, especially the tech industry, it's starting to blow up here. Yeah. even on the manufacturing food industry and like uh, Chiovani and Twin Falls, like that was non-existent mm-hmm. 10 years ago. And it's a big thing, a huge employer down there now. So mm-hmm. yeah, Idaho has gone through some really just significant changes. Yeah. yeah. Like, just, kind of just looking at like the, uh, the East end of Boise in the last six years, you know, my dad was living down mm-hmm. there and it just blew up. I mean, warm Springs, all that. I mean, yep. the Hills above there, wouldn't recommend building up there, but that's cool. You know, it wasn't yeah. a landslide a thousand years ago or anything. But um, well, there was that one subdivision up in the hill somewhere a couple of years ago that, yeah, like the foundations of houses and stuff were like separating and and all that stuff because the ground was moving. Yeah, and it just became like a big abandoned neighborhood of brand new houses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, don't they talk about that in the Bible somewhere where you don't build on sand or I can't remember the analogy, but. I'm not even a biblical guy, but, you know, i that's the first thing it reminded me of. Mm-hmm. I remember learning about them when I was little. And I'm like, I, I see those houses, and it's like, yeah, that, that looks really good, but mm-hmm. no way, man. <laughs> yeah. No, that's the same thing with people in general, you know. Don't put a relationship off of, you know, not a solid foundation either, you know. Yeah. yeah. Solid um, foundation is important in everything you do. Yeah. You know? I mean, look at wealthier, famous people that lack foundational you know, morals or ethics, you know, yeah. if something happens to them, they fall apart. They drag people down with them. Yeah. Someone with a great foundation, if something bad happens, they're still in a straight and narrow, you know, they got a level head about everything. Um, they can still take care of other people and those needs, you know? Um, yeah. So that applies to a lot of shit. Yeah. I like yeah that. Absolutely. So from what Kevin's told me about you, um, as I mean, Kevin and you know each other, you're in school together. Yep. This is our first time meeting a person, but I, mm-hmm. 
been following you on social media for a little bit and seeing on there. When you were coming on, I told Kevin, I'm like, is this the most interesting man in the world? Or <laughs> it seems like you do a lot, man. Yeah, I, I try to find things I, I like. Um, and sometimes I run into things I haven't tried before, like uh, pack burrow racing in Colorado, you know, like running alongside a donkey doing a half marathon. It's, <laughs> <laughs> and I love having a running buddy, but it's like having a donkey as your running buddy is pretty cool. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I um, There's a lot of things I enjoy, and I figure... Uh, you live once, mm-hmm. might as well try it. You got nothing to lose. Yeah, you know, yeah. do some things that scare you a little bit. Yeah, you got to ride yeah. a bull at least once too, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that'd be cool. Actually, this year, before, you know, coronavirus kind of got out of control, uh, one of my uh, fellow soldiers and I, we, uh, you know, we're planning on going to um, uh, Pamplona, Spain to go do the running with the bulls. Oh, wow, that'd be cool. Yeah. And, yeah, COVID happened and it kind of derailed the whole plan. But hopefully, you know, Hopefully we can go next year. Yeah, it, I think it derailed everybody's plans for everything. I know my wife and I had a bunch of concerts planned to go to. We we're going to yeah. travel for some of them and kind of put the kibosh on that. Mm-hmm. Too yeah. bad, but hopefully next year will be better. <laughs> yeah, but so, yeah, to answer your question, um, yeah, if you, yeah, I have a lot of interest, and it's mostly because I saw something I thought I would like, and I tried it, and mm-hmm. it either stuck or it didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it just seems, from what I've heard from Kevin and stuff, it seems like you, you're into a lot of cool stuff. I mean, you fly, right? I do. Mm-hmm. you're a pilot, you're a bassist, right? Yeah. A couple bands, from yeah, what I see. Yeah, a couple bands, yeah. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, some more active than others, but yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So you mentioned uh, military. Are you still mm-hmm. in the military? I am, yeah. I am a uh, captain in the Idaho Army National Guard. Cool. Uh, my MOS is 6-7 Juliet, so I'm an aeromedical evacuations officer. Um, I do that on the M-Day side, and I've got... Uh, a couple of full-time, uh, I have a main full-time position that I'm hired under uh, within our personnel division, but, you know, with that comes a lot of additional projects. So, yeah, the Guard keeps me busy, and I love it. Mm-hmm. I, I live and breathe the Idaho Guards. It's the best thing ever. How long have you been in the military? Uh, since 2013, March. Okay. Yeah. So, so what was your uh, original uh, degree in? So, my first degree was in uh, aeronautical science. Okay. Yeah, out of Utah Valley University. So, first I went to Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. And um, I, I don't like to talk about this often, but the truth is I started there. I dropped out because I basically flunked all of my classes, did very terribly. Um, I, I just wasn't I wasn't ready, you know, for college. wasn't well prepared. And um, I was too busy, you know, trying to be in a heavy metal band. So, I had a lot of, you know poorly mixed priorities mm-hmm. uh, but yeah i went through community college did a couple of things um, caught back up again went back to riddle and realized that you know it, it was way too expensive so i transferred to utah valley university and that's where i got my degree um yeah so that was kind of a crazy crazy roundabout yeah yeah yeah. And you're, you're doing, you're in which program now for school? So I'm studying applied physics uh, with the astrophysics emphasis and uh, with the mathematics minor as well. So same thing, he's uh, same thing Kevin's doing. Yeah. And we actually uh, met each other, not officially, but uh, we were sitting in the same um, uh, intro to quantum physics class together. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, like I, I could tell you were kind of military, but I wasn't quite sure. And we had a mutual friend. Uh, he was telling me, yeah, man, uh, I have this friend named, named Kevin. He's uh, studying physics, and and he described him. And I was like, that's funny. That sounds so much like the dude that's in my class. Yeah. But, <laughs> but it wasn't until recently 
uh, we're sitting in our scientific computing class, or I, I should say sitting over Zoom, and we're talking about our, our mutual friend, Justin. And I'm just like, holy shit, this, this is the guy. He's, mm-hmm. he's been talking about the whole time. Yeah, so it's yeah. funny light bulb moment. Yeah, I know. I, I have an issue I always have um, with just getting like, meeting people. Yeah. That's why all my friends are extroverts. They find me. You know, like, you know, oh, you're a drummer, dude? We want you in our band. You know, yeah. like, Jake started talking one time, I don't know, in junior high. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't have any fucking friends, but this guy's nice to me. And so, it was like Jake and then, you know, Benito, his brother-in-law. And then, so, went from there. So, my best friends were like Jake and Benito. And then, the guys that I formed a band with, we, had a, we were in a ska band in high school. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was always extroverted people you hung out with. Yeah, because other introverts just avoid me. Because we avoid each other, maybe. Um, but yeah, in school, it's the same thing. Like, and then plus, from my perspective, you know, maybe it's insecurity. But it's like all these young kids who think I'm some old fucking weirdo. So just <laughs> this old guy with tattoos just walking around. How, how old are you, Morgan? Uh, Thirty-four. Okay, so yeah. you're older. You're the old guy in the class then. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. How, how old are you again? Uh, Thirty-one. Okay. Yeah. So you're not old. Yeah, no, it's just, it's relative. You know? I imagine yeah. you feel old sitting in a class full of 18 something year old yeah. kids. Well, yeah, they start looking younger and younger as the years go by. Like I remember being 18 thinking I was some hot shot, mm-hmm. you know, dude and all this crap. And I see 18 year olds now. I'm like, damn, you're just, you're literally a little kid. And you, you don't, know? don't know anything. <laughs> I mean, I mean, think about how much you thought you knew at 18. Oh yeah. And now looking back, it's like, man, I didn't know shit. Yeah, That's, dude. I was like. 19 years old and I was a saw gunner in Iraq. Man, I see 19 year olds now and I'm like, you're a little kid. They're just talking about like playing Fortnite and fucking getting drunk. I'm like, yeah, man, that, that sounds kind of good. Different, different paths in life. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's mind blowing. Oh, I, I remember having so much dangerous overconfidence, uh, when I was, uh, you know, when I was young and it's crazy because I, I was a pilot as I got my pilot's license at 17 Oh, wow. and, I, and I used to be such a a much greater risk taker back then than I am now. You know, I got a kid now and I'm married, obviously, and all this stuff. And so, yeah, I think about who I used to be back then, the way I used to think. And, and I'm, I don't know, I feel like the same person. Yeah. But just a little bit more throttled back, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah, which is smart because you can do things the smart way versus brunt using brunt force yeah you know whether it's physical or mental you don't have to just kill yourself pushing through something when you can think around it yeah you know as ed and older age um which is good too that's as good to do that to set an example for your kids Mm -hmm. so that they can kind of just become accustomed to that like thinking about things first you know um and, and on that note how did you um how'd you go about um um adopting your child yeah, so that's a really, it's a long story, but I'll try to condense it as much as I can. Um, so my wife, Coral, and I, we, for years, you know, we tried to get pregnant the conventional way. And after about a year or two, we started to realize, well, you know, something's not right. And eventually, you know, it started off with me going to get, you know, checked to see, hey, you know, am I able to have kids? And it turned out I wasn't able to. And then from there... You know, we tried, you know, you know, sperm donors, stuff like that, going through IUI, IVF, and none of it worked. So mm-hmm. throughout the course of like, like six or seven years, I can't, you know, like the timeline is kind of foggy to me, but 
over all that time, you know, we went through things either not working or miscarriages or, you know, a combination of all that. And at some point, because we've talked about adoption, even when we were, even when we were trying, you know, and it's something that I, you know, we were always interested in doing. And yeah, basically it got to the point where we've exhausted every option. Um, the, the pain of it was like very bad. I mean, for, for my wife, it, it was significant. She's the one physically dealing with it. Um, and yeah, so we decided to adopt and we found a really good, uh, agency here in the Valley called a new beginning. And yeah, they've got the whole process, you know, flushed out and, you know, the legal stuff, the parenting classes, everything. And they kind of set up some really good realistic expectations on, you know, what adoption looks like emotionally, logistically, just everything about it. Um, and you know, we have a, we, we got chosen by a really amazing birth mother that, um, you know, she, you know, we, we were equally supportive of each other in the process. Cause you know, you think about the birth mom that's making the choice to have, you know, her kid be adopted. That's a, that's a really big deal. Mm, yeah. So, so yeah, we, we just supported each other through the process. We're still in contact now. Um, and yeah, the, we got picked, the adoption happened and, it's literally the coolest freaking thing that, mm-hmm. and I, I feel like I've lived a really interesting life and I've got to do a lot of cool stuff in the cool places, uh, met a lot of great people, you know, just good stuff in general. Um, but having a son is like, it's literally the best thing. Like I, it, it's, it's hard to put to words, it, you know? Yeah. 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 yeah best definitely. thing that's ever happened to us. Well, like I, I know from personal experience as well, to have a child that's not yours by blood. Yeah. And man, you can still love the hell out of him. Oh and yeah. Yeah. I, my oldest son is my stepson and I've loved him. Like he was mine since I've been around him since he was three years old. Yeah. And that's, that's really cool to see people who can't do it themselves, help a child who, mm-hmm. who knows what their life would be without yeah. you and your wife. And we, we touched on that a little bit in our first episode. And I remember Kevin felt bad for, something he said about adoption because he and he kind of retracted what he said and, uh but we touched on adoption a little bit in that first episode yeah. well basically it was you know it was the idea of rich people not protecting your own first like help yeah. out people in our country yeah yeah and i get the appeal to you know to adopt from out of the country because there's places where people are suffering oh yeah indeed mm-hmm. the, the genocide in africa which you know it's it's all right. We're not going to talk about that because we're not going to profit as much off that as we do having a war in the Middle East, right? Mm-hmm. But it's still a huge deal, you know. But at the same time, there's a lot of people suffering in this country and kids that are suffering because they have, you know, shitty parents. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, and it's not, this isn't 10,000 years ago. Like now, this isn't 2,000 years ago where people were either killed or kicked out of tribes for being pieces of shit. Mm-hmm. And now, mm-hmm. like, it's every country. So you can get away with it. You can be as fucking stupid as you want as long as you're not breaking enough rules to go to prison mm-hmm. and have kids. Um, that's not fair to them. You know, so it's nice to see when there's people who can do it, adopt them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know it's not the same in your situation, just yeah, yeah. to me generally, mm-hmm. you know, that give them a chance in life, you know. Well, I yeah. think with children having a good role model in their life, even if it's not their parent. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, 
half of my friends pretty much lived with us because their parents were kind of pieces of shit. Yeah. And my parents would take everybody in and everybody mm-hmm. was always at my house. And it gives them, if they have a mom and dad that are no good, but they see their friend's mom and dad who are good. Yeah. I and mean, that's, that's good for kids. And then when it comes to adoption, I mean, who knows what life your son would have led without you and your wife. Yeah, who knows? And I mean, you know what? I'll say this, like, you know, his, uh, his birth mom, she's a, she's a very good person, you mm-hmm. know, just a good person in a tough spot. And, um, and yeah, we, we just happened to be here and she chose us, you mm-hmm. know, and, and to the point of what you said about having a good role models and, um, I'm going to share another really uh, personal note. So like when I was three years old, my, my father uh, died from suicide. And so, you know, at the time I didn't realize the severe impact of that, but as I grew up, um, that that's something that I didn't realize it until, you know, later on, I, it's, I started to to figure out that, Hey, I've got, you know, anger issues and all these other, you know, crazy feelings that stem from this, this dark Mm -hmm. history that I've got. Um, but you know, uh, one of the things that made a huge difference. So we have a, a really close friend of our family and, um, and he, he met my mom and, you know, became really close to us at, you know, we're a pretty young age and he, he, along with another gentleman that I met later in my life, um, you know, also a pilot as a matter of fact, you know, these two, these two men really, you know, taught me what, what it means to, you know, be a good person or a good contributing person in society, you know, not, not being a piece of crap, um, working hard, you know, the basics that you're, that you're supposed to teach a little kid and yeah, role models are, it's incredible. And yeah, you don't always have to have a, you know, like you're saying like a biological parent or a father mm-hmm. figure or whatever, um, but yeah, that, that stuff makes a huge difference. Yeah. And when those role models have, have life experience, they've had suffering, they've had struggle in their life. You know, um, I don't know if the best role models are always the people that just have money because they found a way to succeed. Yeah. They find a way to succeed in one way. You know, maybe it's, um, a program developer, right? He's making 200 K a year, but his kids are going to Eagle high school and selling drugs. Yeah. Right. And they have no aspirations to really succeed themselves. Mm-hmm. So just by having money does not give them a pathway to become a, a man or a great woman. You know, you have to actually be there and sometimes you need to experience yourself. Um, and a lot of people are I think, getting caught up in that. Like it's all about money, yeah. but you are not in their lives while you're getting that money and you have no experience to teach them, you know, then you're not, you're just doing your right to service. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's good to have the super models like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, it's like my dad, who's my stepdad also, I was raised by someone who wasn't biologically my father. And we never had a lot of money, but he taught me what it meant to be a man and be mm-hmm. a contributing citizen. And yeah. and he took me in as his own. I mean, I was, I think, seven years old when him and my mom got together. Mm-hmm. And my birth father was something else. He was, he was not a good role model whatsoever. And my stepdad came in and he showed me what a hard worker was, yeah. um, how to love your kids and your wife and, and all that. So I grew up seeing this man who was not biological, my dad. And I know in the beginning, I remember thinking like, this is weird. Who is this guy? Yeah. But, and I, I didn't call him dad for, for years, but as I became a teenager, I started to kind of see, and he loved me like I was his own. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, like you were just saying, Kevin, about financial stuff. I mean, we didn't have it, but you don't need that to, to show your kids a proper way of living either, you know, and to be 
just to be a good person. Yeah, you guys yeah. are present. And if you're out at the office 12 hours a day making money, you're not present. Mm-hmm. You're just giving them money and you're like, you know, look at our sweet countertops and our pool. Like, yep. cool, man. Like, well, even, even then though, like working a lot, I remember my dad worked a ton, but even, and that's something I've tried to take from him is I, I will work my butt off to make sure my family is comfortable, mm-hmm. but you got to still make time to be present with your children. Oh yeah. And my dad did that. He was, he worked so much, but he made the time and I tried to do the same. If I'm home and I, I mean, I, I go out of my way to be with my kids. Me and my wife both do that. Mm-hmm. She gets busy. I get busy, but you have to, you, you gotta be present around the children. I think, you know? Oh yeah. And I'm learning that right now, you know, just with the classes that we take and, you know, I work full time for the guard. I fly for the guard, you know, and, and I got these hobbies of mine that, you know, we talked about, but, you know, now that I have a son, it's like, wait a minute, it, something either has to give or I got to throttle back a little bit because mm-hmm. like this kid is, like, this is everything now, mm-hmm. you know, and you can't just, and it's like, yeah, I'm always going to have to work hard. You know, that's the, that's the nature of what I signed up for. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't be, I can't be a company commander and be a complete dirtbag and, and just skirt my duties to decide, like, I have to do those things. And that's non-negotiable, but it, it, and it just comes down to basic, you know, time management. Mm-hmm. It's like, Hey, I have all these other priorities and yeah, that's great. But now I've got this amazing son. I've got to make time for him. Mm-hmm. And that's something, you know, my wife and I, we've always struggled with, like, you know, it used to be, you know, prior to the military, I worked in politics full time and, and that used to just eat up my soul. Like it, it just took over my life. And, and that's the point where I would say our marriage struggled the most, you know, and, and it wasn't until I joined the military and I started kind of like, you know, realizing what was, you know, truly important that your job will always be there. But the time you waste with your family, you never get that, get that back, you know, for sure. For sure. So yeah, that was kind of like, you know, that in some situations, you know, if you wake up calls and it's like, all right, you know, I got to make some adjustments in my life and, and then make time for my wife. And now it's my wife and my kid. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. well, and having, having a kid, it'll, it'll change you. Yeah. It, it really, it's, it's a kind of a cliche thing to say, but it's true. I, no, it's I, totally true. I remember when me and my wife got together, I was young, I was 21 years old and I'm trying to be a father figure and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And you learn to balance it out. Yeah. You do. Like you were saying right now, you're in that phase of trying to, You'll get it. It's things work out. It's somehow, some way. Yeah. And you have to let it change you. If a lot of people, some, a lot of guys don't, you know, they're emotionally numb to the kids and you see it a lot in the army, uh, especially at higher ranks where now you believe you're in a position of power, even if you're not the guy actually wielding a fucking gun, running into rooms with it, you know, like Sergeant Majors and their kids are usually little dirt bags, you know, druggies. They're the, you know, the old saying, like, Sergeant Major's daughter's in the barracks getting pounded by, like, ten guys. And that is real <laughs> shit, dude. Um, so, yeah. Um, and because they're not present, they're, to them, their job comes first. You know? And it's like, well, that's cool. I guess it's a sacrifice, but your kids are paying that for you to be, you know, a mediocre leader, you know? And so, here's what's amazing about that. So, you talk about that and I think about, so you were active duty mm-hmm. your, your whole career. So with, I can't speak for every other national guard organization, but 
the Idaho Guard, I'm not saying it doesn't come with any problems, but it it's an extremely, extremely family-oriented organization. Like, and a lot of our senior leaders, almost, I would say a lot of major decisions that are made always, always take a big part of that, you know, um, equation is the family and, and, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, deployments, training events, you name it, um, they, they kind of sit back and they think about, okay, we're working these soldiers to death and, or we're, we're about to work these soldiers to death. You know, what, what's this, what are the implications for the families? And even at my level, at the company command level, you know, we think about, you know, hey, we're trying to execute these kind of training events. You know, when are we going to send our guys guys home? Are we going to keep until 6 p.m.? No. Uh, I mean, is there any reason for that? Um, are we going to release, maybe let some guys go home early because he's got a, uh, you know, his son has a football game or a birthday party. And a lot of my guys don't realize it, but we were actively keeping notes of these kind of things. Like, oh, um, you know, Bobby's got a daughter's, you know, birthday next week. Uh, let's probably think about, you know, front loading a lot of the crap that he has to do so that at the end of the day, he's got a few extra hours and he gets to go home. So when I spend time with active duty units, whether they be on deployments or, you know, extended training events and stuff like that, I literally like it, it blows my mind because I see the opposite and it's mission, mission, mission. And that's great. Like we always want to meet the mission. Right. But if your soldiers are not mentally, you know, healthy or they, or, or they feel, you know, beat down because all they're doing is work. Um, they've had no space in their life for the good things that they need to enjoy. Um, you know, family's not stable because they're always, you know, training and working and doing all this crap. And then your mission suffers. Now you have no mission if you've got no guys to do it, you know? Yeah. And I think a lot of active duty organizations, they miss that. And maybe it's the Idaho culture that attributes to that or whatever it is, but that that's why I love the Idaho Guard so much because we literally you know, we're family oriented. If we're about to do something pretty major, it's like, hey, um, you know, what are the implications for our guys? Like we need to meet this mission, but what do we kind of have to adjust for in advance to make it feasible for them to be able to do it? So so yeah, it's amazing. Like when, when you think of the active duty and the National Guard contrast, and I don't know anything about the reserves. I haven't spent too much time with those guys, but but yeah, that that it's a pretty big thing. Yeah, it's again, it's a balance between being ready, being prepared for the mission, um, and your family. And a lot of and I mean, there's been studies about that. Like if your home life is in shambles, it affects the mission. Because now you're stressed about that. You're not focused. Um, so it's important to have that balanced out um, and not just treat your home life like something you have to do. Like being apathetic towards everybody in your family and just focusing on, you know, your military work because that's not going you know, to set you up for a good life. And almost there's almost a stigma to it, too, to know a guy like an NCO next to you. You know, he's a pretty strong dude to think about him being an emotional person with yeah. his family. It's almost like, that's fucking weird, dude. Mm -hmm. Like, But it's actually healthy. Yeah. You know, um, so there's also a stigma to it. And it's not something they help you understand when you go in the Army. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, what you need to understand is you're going to be here until, you know, six, even if your training is done by two, you put three hours in at the target detection, you know, like the sniper teams, three more hours in at the range. It's like, I'm good for today. Yeah. I'll start doing some badass shit tomorrow again. I'll hit it hard. It's like, no, you're going to sit around for another four hours and do what? Like mop, you know, handbook training. Cause yeah. no one had the attention span for that anyway, after the, a day. So there is still a lot of, and then you're going to go home and because now you're mad and you don't have like you have purpose or intention to what you were doing throughout the day, mm-hmm. you're going to go drink. Like, so we talked about with Rona, you know, well, I'm this, I'm not satisfied with what I'm doing. So I'm going to go drink it away or pop some pills and not think about it. Yeah. And now your life cascades down and then you get out of the military and you're like, Oh fuck, I'm at rock bottom now. What do I do? For, you're excited for a little bit to get out, you know, the grass is greener. And then it gets worse again. You know, yeah. you're, on a down, you're on a down curve. Um, and so, and there's not a whole lot of people there to help you sometimes. So, yeah, anyway, that all there's a correlation to all of that. It stems yeah. from somewhere, and I think it's a balance between family and work and doing it correctly, you yeah. know. And I'm not saying we've done everything right. And, you know, funny story, like, we, a couple of years ago, um, uh, earlier in my command, I'm, like, planning this annual training that we've got going on, and it's right before we mobilize to go to Afghanistan. And I'm all excited about this plan. I, you know, jammed up all this stuff together. And and without realizing it, I planned uh, some training events clear over Easter Sunday. I didn't even think about it. <laughs> and some of my guys, I would say, I'll just say all my guys, they are, you know, for that specific deployment, they were 100% committed. I mean, they, they had their eye on the prize. They were ready to go do medevac overseas and nothing was going to stop us, but that was a pretty big problem and I was so blinded by it that I didn't, I didn't realize that it was a problem. So, uh, my battalion commander called me into his office and he's like, Hey, um, you know, what, how's your, how's your training plan coming along? I'm like, Oh, it's, it's looking good, sir. It's, it's looking great. And, um, and he's like, well, I kind of see an issue with it. And, uh, and I said, well, what's that? And he's like, well, what's happening on this specific day and i looked at my training calendar i'm like well we've got this we've got that and he's like no what else is happening and i'm looking at the calendar i'm like what is he talking about and then i I pulled up my phone my google calendar and it said easter (laughs) i'm like oh crap and he's like morgan are you religious i said no sir i'm not and and he said well do you think some of your other guys are probably religious and they want to spend that time with their families or not even just for religion, but they have, they have various reasons for spending that time off. And I'm like, oh, man, that and like I got this sinking feeling and I'm like, man, I, I and what ended up happening was somebody, you know, used the open door policy and was like, hey, um, Lieutenant Hill, he's <laughs> he's losing his mind here. He's making us train on Easter Sunday. <laughs> and And they were 100 percent correct. And so, you know, we obviously made adjustments and gave everybody that that day off and and you know that was a lesson learned where i you know even trying to make a concerted effort to do the right thing for soldiers and their families i got sucked into that bubble i was like hey mission first mission first no matter what and and it took that to make me realize that hey dude like you're screwing your guys and their families by not paying attention to that one little detail so yeah it, it happens that all of us yeah. Everybody makes mistakes, you know, and yeah. I think the important thing is like you did is learning from them. 
you know, and admitting that you were wrong. I mean, I'm still learning. That is, I'm still learning every day. It's a, it's a crazy job, you know, and I'm happy to do it. But so, what? But, what does a medevac helicopter pilot do? Can you explain that? Yeah. So we, uh, so we fly the U eight sixty Blackhawk. Um, the medevac Blackhawks are configured just like a ambulance, basically. So we call it an air ambulance uh, configuration. And so, what we do. So we have several things that we focus on. Um, every Blackhawk pilot, you know, we have base tasks that we that we do in the helicopter. We, you know, fly certain maneuvers to standard uh, practice. Um, you know, executing emergency procedures, instrument flying, um, all of that. You know, we we can keep on going about that forever. But the thing that makes our mission unique is there's no major planning component. To, to what we do. Uh, we orient ourselves to a mission or what's going on. Like we get briefed on what's happening and, and we have a general idea on who's doing the mission, where they're doing it. And, and in a nutshell, that's pretty much it. Um, but if, and when we actually get a mission, uh, our job is to be able to respond within 15 minutes or less and get all the information we need for an emission, which is basically, you know, the grid on where it's happening, uh, patients, um, who we're going to be talking to, and that that's mostly it. And, of course, how we're going to communicate with them. Uh, and we get that helicopter off the ground within 15 minutes, and we fly to the point of injury. And we have very little situational awareness on what to expect when we get there. So... You know, we're making a lot of decisions within one to two minutes prior to landing as we're getting that essay, you know, as we're talking to, you know, that JTAC, you know, the controller on the ground that's, you know, with the ground team, um, getting in safely, whether we're being engaged or not, you know, we usually have some kind of overhead coverage, mm -hmm. A-10s, Apaches or whatever. But even then, if you've dealt with the Taliban before, they're going to they're going to go after you regardless of who's watching over you or not. Like they're going to come at you. So, you know, our job again is to get off within 15 minutes or less, get to that point of injury, get in safe and get out safely. And that can involve a million different things, depending on the situation we encounter. That makes the mission incredibly exciting. Um, not to disparage any of the, uh, any of the other missions like air assault attack or, or um, heavy lift, but we've got an incredibly exciting mission because of that. And, and not just that, but, you know, we get to take somebody in, in their worst moment that they've ever been in and, and we get to pull them out of that and hopefully bring them to safety. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that's a big deal. And, and we do that for, you know, the Afghanis, the Iraqis, you know, coalition forces, um, and it's even more impactful to us when we get to do it for Americans. Like if an American gets hurt and we get to go pick him up, like, you know, you go back to the FOB and, and you know, you start thinking about the implications of that. Because when you're in, in the middle of the mission, you're not thinking about any of that. You're just doing the job. But when you go back and you're sitting there watching your Netflix or, you know, just BS and wasting time all of these emotions about what just took place start running through your head, you know, whether you got engaged or not, or 
um, who is it that you just helped, you know? And man, I wonder if they got families or what, you know, like the implications of what you just did is that they're huge. Um, so yeah, we, we love the mission because of that. Um, and as an officer, as a, uh, as a company commander, I'm a medical officer that's managing this medical unit, this mission. Um, and a lot of people see medevac and they see it as an aviation unit. It, it technically isn't. It's a medical unit that flies helicopters. Okay. So we're no different than a ground evac team, you know, medevac team. Uh, the only difference is that they have Humvees and we have UH-60s. Mm-hmm. It's a big difference. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a big difference, but we're doing the same. Minus the flying, it's the same tasks. Yeah. Like you look at what the flight paramedics do. They really, uh, they're performing the same, the same type of care as they would render to a guy in a ground evac situation. Um, again, the venue is a little different, mm-hmm. but the flight paramedics are they're they're doing the same job as a six eight whiskey that's on the ground. And you have a crew. You have a crew of guys mm-hmm. in your helicopter. Yep. And- yeah. So there's two pilots. There's a pilot in command and the pilot. Uh, and you have the flight paramedic, uh, depending on the mission set, will carry one or two. And then we have the crew chief uh, that, and, you know, we have specific areas in the helicopter that we sit. And, yeah, we go out and we do our thing. It's, it's That's a, cool. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. No, it's always nice seeing them come in quick. Um, you know, I don't know how many times you had medevac birds come in. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, but it, it was quite a bit. Yeah. You know, and even for... You know, like one mask had a situation, um, you know, we had a couple, in, a few guys injured, one dead. And so QRF rolls out and QRF rolls out. The SF medics are right behind them on the fucking four wheelers. Just yeah. like we're going. And then when they get there, they're taking fire and then they get fucking hit by pressure, more pressure plates. Oh yeah. So, so now the QRF is fucked up. Mm-hmm. The ODA um, medics got fucked up, and then I I feel like the medevac bird was there. I mean, I don't know. Time passes so weird when that kind of stuff's going on, but it's extremely quick. Oh, yeah. And you just never thought in your mind, like, oh, they don't give a shit about us, you know? Everybody else, yeah. Like, you're on chain of command at the time level, yeah, they probably don't give a fuck about us. But the medevac birds are always there, and they're going to, they're gonna you know, get these guys up and take care of them, so... You know, there was never a question about what, you know, if they were half-assing anything, they never did, you know? Yeah, you would be blown away at, so every, we do so much to cut that launch time down as as small as we can make it. Um, I think, you know, what one of the best records we had was like three to five minutes. Because literally when we get noticed before the mission even drops and it's approved, like we are... Half the time we're sitting in a helicopter, we've got the pilot and the crew chief, you know, at the controls ready to go. And then the pilot in command and the, um, uh, the flight paramedic, they're, they're inside, you know, getting the most up-to-date information, trying to build their situational awareness. And they'll come out to the helicopter, we'll get launch approval and we're out. Um, and we do all these little things like we'll, we'll set up our boots a certain way, our jackets, our you know, our, our best, we, we've got it in a helicopter laid out a certain way so that we even had a guy, he had his, his pants draped around his boots, like a firefighter. <laughs> and, he, and he just hung out in his skivvies and, and he literally just jumped in his stuff and it cut down his response time by minutes. So we, we had these little rituals, like everybody kind of had their own little thing. 
Um, and it, it's solely because it, it's not because we cared about, I mean, we care about it, but it wasn't just about the response time. But like when a guy gets hit, think about it. A guy gets hit, that gets radioed up to their command. It starts going through the approval process. And by the time it gets down to us, I mean, that person's been hit for minutes. Mm -hmm. So if we're monitoring that, right, and we're already in the helicopter ready to go, by the time the approval process hits, we're ready. So we've saved that dude like five to seven minutes. So every every little thing we do is so that we can help out the patient. So that, yeah, that, that's why we love doing what we do. Um, and, 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 you know, there's obviously a, like an element of, adrenaline and excitement that comes with that you know because we're not spending 72 hours or more like our aerosol counterparts you know planning all day and going to execute a mission it's like hey it's happening now let's go yeah mm -hmm. no there's something to that i mean it can be empowering um you know i remember yeah there was times where we weren't prepared necessarily i, mean, I was always prepared but i mean where it was at a weird time way early, you know, at dusk or dawn and I'd be rolling, I'd roll out the end of the cop, the cops getting, taking fire and I'd be in like my PT shorts and like a civilian t-shirt still and just rolling out with like a long gun, just like, you know, all right, we're in contact, you know, like not, you know, that I didn't know if me getting in my uniform was going to help anything. Like if I take too long, you know, what kind of ambush is it? Are they about to roll in with V-bids and blow this fucker open? Yeah. You know, and if I could take a shot sooner, would that help? So, yeah, um, you know, from a chain of command, higher chain of command or media, it looks like these guys are lazy. But really, it's like I'm reacting as fast as I can, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but, yeah, no, it's a powering once you're in a situation. It's always before. It's the waiting. It's, you know, at least from my perspective, it was the waiting. Like, I know about they take contact. I think I might step on a pressure plate because this yeah. little this little T section looks sketchy. That was the most terrifying part. But then when it starts, when your adrenaline's going, your cortisol's now pumping through, your, your sugar's in your fucking blood, yeah. and your legs start shaking a little bit. But other than that, you're narrowed in. You're kind of focused. Um, you know. So yeah, I think being prepared and being on top of it is helpful, and being empowering as mm -hmm. well. You know. Um, but yeah, it's that, it's that waiting around is like fucking, it drives people crazy. Oh yeah. Know? No, I, I can only imagine it. It's, it's always so crazy hearing it from like this pers the perspective of the guys that, you know, are the ones needing the medevac and, and thinking about what that weight must feel like, you know, um, we've had situations where, you know, cause they always give us approval to go. And depending on the situation as it develops, who's overhead, um, what's happening on the ground or whatnot, we don't always have the approval to land all the time. And it, this is not me, you know, defending the very higher ups, but there, there's a separate, there's another perspective to all this. So you're, you're sitting at the command CP in Bagram or Kandahar or whatever, and you're a task force commander and there's Taliban all over the place. You've got guys on the ground that need to get extracted. But as the situation develops, it looks so bad that you can't really 
insert that medevac right away. You can't legitimately have them land because you know they're in a situation to where it's highly likely that they could also get hit or go down. And all of a sudden, now you have not only the patient that they were going to pick up, but now you have four more flight crew that could be hurt or dead. So I remember personally as a you know OIC for my medevac area, just being so frustrated sometimes that it's like, hey, we did our part. We got up really quick. We're out there in record time. Like, let us land right now. Like, what's the problem? And it took a lot of um, it, it, it took a lot of time and perspective to kind of see, you know, what that risk approval, risk mitigation process looks like. And ultimately, if you're a full bird, if you're the one-on-one cab commander, you know, um, and you're the person that's making those decisions you have all the information in front of you and now you ultimately have to decide hey am i okay with assuming this risk or that risk uh, if it goes wrong these are all the things that could happen these are all the lives that could be lost if it goes right great and so imagine being the person that has to make that call like that i mean personally that that would suck yeah <laughs> to be the guy that's like okay you have landing approval and then oh they just landed on an ID because this area wasn't properly cleared or this crew just got shot up by an RPG or whatever. And crap, I'm responsible for that. But, you know, you also kind of have to, you're in that position and you kind of have to have the courage to make those calls at the same time. So mm -hmm. it's a little bit of both, but, but, you know, as a commissioned officer, it's like, Hey, this is the kind of stuff that I'll be dealing with in the future. You know, maybe, maybe not. Um, would I be okay making that kind of call? You know, yeah. it sucks being in that seat is basically what I'm getting at. So yeah, that, that's, that's the other side of it, but <laughs> it still sucks. To wait. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I, I would hang out in our talk with the commander for a lot of my downtime, you know, cause a lot of times, you know, the UAVs of pickup feed of a dude and playing an unpressure plate or just literally hanging out with a machine gun, like a PKM or something yeah. waiting. And then, so it'd be nice to be right there. You'd be like, Hey, can you get a position to shoot this motherfucker? You know, so it was nice seeing everything from his point of view. Yeah. It was nice seeing his humility, him getting pissed off when decisions were, they were over his head. We get turned down and stuff and him just going out and beating the fuck out of like a little mud hut with a baseball bat. Like, yeah. you know, it, it weighed on him heavily mm -hmm. all the time, you know? Um, but it was nice to know like, Cause you can always complain in person above you. OSD, OIC, or it's, you know, it's D seven, you know, but until you're around them more, you know, that something's always above them and it's controlling their decisions. Yeah. You know, there's a lot that goes into your decision-making based off of what you've been told. Like, mm -hmm. you know, based on this circumstance, here's when you can do this and here's when you can't, even if it's like you maybe disagree with it, you know, that you have to balance what you're being told you can do and what yeah. you can do to help the guys on the ground. Yeah. You know, so I completely understand that. Like, yeah, even if you feel like a bad guy, you're really still doing the best you possibly can in any situation. Yeah, and that's what it all comes down to. So, so you, you, so you've heard the term like NCOPD, OPD, you know, officer professional development. Um, I, whenever they're like, all right, guys, uh, we're going to meet here. We're going to do OPD. And it turns out being a 45 minute PowerPoint session that drives me nuts. So. The, the best OPD session, or one of the best that I've ever had, so that same 101 cat commander, he came to our FOB. Uh, he was basically kind of doing, call it a town hall session with every dust-off, you know, medevac unit around, you know, around country. 
So he came to our fob. We went out to greet him and stuff like that. And he met with the FABO I see. It was this, um, or chief of staff. It was a Marine Corps colonel. Um, it was probably one of the most fascinating moments that I've had because, you know, again, I, I had, um, at that point of the deployment, I had a bunch of, you know, hate and discontent for decisions that were being made higher up. Um, a lot of it, which was interfering with our missions, right? And our response times, you know, the potential outcome of what would happen with the patient. Um, and I, I just remember just being so angry that and irritated that I had to spend time with this dude. But, you know, we greeted him, picked him up, and, you know, the first stop we made before he came and met with my team was, uh, you know, we met with this Marine Corps colonel, and he was talking about, you know, decision-making process at his level and how, as a full bird, you know, at our level, we see him and it's like, man, this, this is the big dog, you know? But above him is a one-star and a two-star. You know, the CENTCOM commanders, uh, you know, they're, they're out there making all these decisions um, that affect the ability for him to do his mission. And so he's filtering down what happens to the rest of everybody else and trying to make decisions that are in the best interest of everybody. But and sometimes it doesn't quite fit our agenda as a dust off unit and what we're trying to achieve, um, and, you know, with our small piece of the pie and, you know, sitting down with him and that Marine Corps colonel and just hearing them talk about how they do their job. I'm just like, wow, this is a fascinating window into the future as a, as a Lieutenant captain, this is like the best OPD session you can get. And it's not a PowerPoint. You're listening to two dudes, you know, these two Oh sixes talking about, Hey, this is, these are all the mission considerations we have to deal with. How does this affect our guys? And, how does it affect the way we make our decisions and so on? So, yeah, it's really extremely fascinating. Yeah, decision-making on the ground, problem-solving on the ground for the betterment of the guys, you know. In fact, there's two instances I remember of, you know, our company commander doing that. One didn't get approved. It was every time I'd go out with them, because it's a company commander rolls out, I roll out too. So I would go out, well, I'm going to go out. That's what I called it, my party kit. It was just my M4, <laughs> my M4 and a, uh, the 320 grenade launcher. It's your boomstick. Yeah, yeah, dude. My 320 <laughs> was clipped on my left shoulder, so I was like, if anything happens, I'm going to react to contact with this. I'm going to fucking push you down, you know. And I called it, so what I, I called it tactical kite flying. We'd be rolling out, and we'd see, like, kites pop up by these little kids. And, like, we start seeing it. Like, every time we go, I'm like, they're fucking tactical kite flying, dude. <laughs> like, can we engage these little motherfuckers? And like, no, they're kids. You're like, good. Can we just beat them up and take their fucking guns? <laughs> and they can't beat them up. Like, you know, so that one got squashed. And then the second one was where I almost got like dicked down hard. Um, and we were on our third first sergeant by this point. Mm -hmm. One got relieved. He said he was going crazy. Really, he was just putting us in the kill squads, right? He was like putting guys who knew what they were doing together. And we weren't doing anything that was, you know, against what we were supposed to be doing. It just they frowned upon it. Second one passed away in a pressure plate. He, I mean, he was frocked in. He was a great dude. Um, and then our third one, he was there just to like dig us down. Essentially, he was yeah. just there to for appearance. Like you're not rolling out. You're not going out and cure. You're doing nothing but logistics, right? And so he was all about dicking me down. So we see our cops getting shot at. And so me and my buddy, your bar, I go to a tower and we see this dude, 
don't know, 350 to 500 meters away. I can't remember now. And he's looking at us with binos. He's just staring at us. And we're like, dude, he's right there. Like, yeah. So before even, we didn't radio it up. I was just like, what do you think we should do? And he's like, let's just shoot this motherfucker. So, <laughs> so, so I shoot him and I don't know why he was also there, but on the Hesco's next to us was the captain of the ODA team. Nah. I don't know what officers like captain's doing, just hanging out with a bunch of dudes, like trying to write the contact. That's not really his job, but it was badass. You know, mm-hmm. he was like a cheerleader at that point. So he was almost like egging it on. So anyway, shoot this guy and like, whatever we go back. And, uh, first time it's like, yeah, you're fucking done now. Like, it's like, Oh shit. Like, but it was, you know, our company commander that stuck up and said, no, this was problem solving on the spot. Mm-hmm. They were attacking us. And this day I was observing to see how long it took, where we went and how, you know, and what we were going to, how we were going to respond. So he was providing great intel for them. So it was not a disservice. So they ended up changing the ROE. If you see guys buying those in that situation, I shoot the fucker. Mm. I still got my ass chewed because he didn't end up dying. Um, we shot him like in the collarbone right next to his neck or something. And he survived. Wow. Um, so and I think they ended up taking him to calf. And so they knew like, well, this mm-hmm. is the shit bag that, that Kevin shot. So they knew he, he was a Taliban. You know, said he wasn't. Um, yeah. So, and that was the, the only thing I really got shot for at the end of everything. You know, like a couple weeks later, it was like, if you're going to shoot him, fucking kill him. Like, but it was an impressive shot. I think it was offhand or something. <laughs> so I was, so, you know, you're never really take, you're never taking shots from the prone. You're, yeah, they're always yeah. modified positions. Um, oh yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. They're yeah. modified positions and the guy is running, you know, what's his distance? How fast is he going? Why are you taking this shot? Um, you know, so a lot goes into it, especially when you're regular army and you're not an ODA team that has countless rounds to go shoot and become perfectionists. Yeah. Every round you shoot, when you get the, the funding, it has to be purposeful. Yeah. Um, so, so that makes it kind of even harder because you know, you're not the top of your game, you know, mm-hmm. for regular army guys, regular, regular army snipers, you're at the top of your game when you're out of sniper school, when you've just been shooting hundreds of rounds a day. Yeah. Um, you know, unless, you know, you're in a unit that has a lot of funding for it, but man, that, that blows my mind. Cause like, I, I think about my experience every time that my guys, that we were engaged by something, we, we can't shoot back. We're a freaking medevac bird. We've got no guns, yeah. you know, and it, it's totally coming in our ability to dodge whatever the crap's coming at us, you know? So yeah, to hear that, I'm like, man, that must be nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just kind of do what you want sometimes, but it, no, it's a, uh, no, I think you kind of think back on it. And like I said earlier, it's a lot of that's in, like a sense empowering, like, mm-hmm. I don't have, I don't, sometimes I do if I don't think about it for a long time, but as long as I kind of keep them fresh in my mind, I don't have any negative experience with shooting other human beings because I know they're trying to kill us. It's more about, it's in the sense it's how it's heavy, dude. Taking yeah. someone's life is heavy, mm-hmm. especially, and I can't imagine if someone does it on accident. Like, oh, I accidentally shot my friend just sitting here, you know, or I ran yeah. someone over the car, I killed someone's kid in an accident. Mm-hmm. You know, I couldn't imagine. I mean, that's, that's deep shit. But when it's in those situations, it's not as bad. I think it's the trauma comes from sitting around. It's the expectation of things happening, mm-hmm. you know, walking around thinking you're going to step on shit, you know, pressure plates and stuff like that. Um, 
RPGs come out north because they initiate contact with RPGs. Yeah. So next thing you know, some shit with white smokes coming at you and it's fucking loud. You want to hit oh. something, you know? Yeah. Um, well, is that like me? I have no experience whatsoever with what either of you were talking about. But is it less of a burden on you if you feel like if I didn't shoot him, he was going to shoot me? Yeah. And what makes it that's half of it, the other half is mob mentality. It's the fact that everyone around you is like, that was fucking badass, dude. Like, that was awesome. Or, you know, they'll make fun of you. You know, why don't you shoot more or something? You know, they just, this mob mentality. Well, it's, it's tribal. Like I said, I've never been there, but to me, it sounds like everybody's just trying to survive. You're all trying to, and I don't mean just survive by not getting killed, but mentally too. You're, you're put into a lot of stress. You're mm-hmm. doing a lot of things that the average human being is not having to do and think about this too like you know think think about the realm that he operates in and what i i operate Mm -hmm. in right like these guys especially like infantry armor whatever um the the guys that are on the attack on the offense um and then you think about medical units like our job is to save a life Mm -hmm. regardless of who it is but still in a combat scenario we have to reconcile with the fact that we might have to do this job under fire. Mm-hmm. We we might get hit, and that's that's it. You know, you, you kind of yeah. just accept it and you go in. Yeah, um, it's cruise with your head a little bit. And what I think, this is just me speaking from a personal note, but what I think the military should do in in both of our fields, you know, whether you're on the offense or the medical uh, medical side of things. I think that proper expectations should be set. Like, you know, the future guys that come into medevac, for instance, you know, we we haven't been shy about, you know, telling them like, hey, this is what we felt. These are the things that we saw that we didn't really anticipate. Like, we went in with a different set of expectations. And unfortunately, it kind of screws with your head a little bit. But at the same time, it's like, hey, um, and I can imagine it might be similar for guys in the infantry, but like, hey, if, um, you know, if you feel a certain way about maybe taking a life or maybe this happened, like you were getting shot at and you made these decisions that could have, you know, maybe if you did something else, it could have worked out differently. You you start feeling this, um, you know, sometimes, you know, feelings of guilt, you know, feelings of regret, maybe doubting yourself. And it's like, hey it's okay to feel these things but mm-hmm. ultimately you know in that moment when you had to make that tough decision um were you doing the best you can to to make the outcome that you were looking for and if the answer is yes then have that be some kind of point of comfort yeah mm-hmm. and i've never taken a life so I, I don't know what that feels like but you know i i can imagine that's like that that's something you kind of have to set as an expectation it's like hey you're gonna do the best you can and sometimes you know it may not work out the way that you hoped it would. Like, hey, I executed this landing and, you know, we damaged something. Or, you know, we didn't get there fast enough. The patient died or whatever. Or, hey, I killed somebody or whatever. And how am I going to reconcile that in my head and be able to move forward in a healthy way? And I think that's what the military should maybe focus on a little more. Yeah. And I know and that's that's what's working the, worked in the past is a clear distinction on who the enemy is. You know, like when the kids are stepping on pressure plates, which happens all the time, and then 
you try to save him, and a medevac bird comes and picks him up, you know, it's like, well, it's not your fault he didn't survive. He was fucked up for 20 minutes before he got there, or longer, because someone around the village picked him up and took him there for so maybe 30, 40 minutes. And so as long as you have a clear distinction of who the enemy is, they're who's at fault, you know. Um, and that's without going down a rabbit hole of why we're there and everything. Like, you know, why are we just going to taking over cops and, you know, building our cops up and then going out on missions, endless missions and not really taking ground necessarily. Just going out and getting fucked up, coming back or fucking them up and then pulling you out, putting somebody else there, then turning the cop down then moving somewhere else. It's like, it's just there because it's a nine to five and the, everyone's comfortable making the amount of money they are off of the war. So it's like, Hey, as long as we're moving these chess pieces around all the time, everyone's mm-hmm. still making their money. These Israelis are still making their money off of the 120 mortar systems we use. You know, it's not just American built shit, you know, um, everyone's making money off of it. So just keep them there and keep a distinction on who the enemy is and who's evil, you know, cause they're in their mind. We're evil. Yeah. They're extremely religious and like these white people that came like coming to fair land and fucking with us. And so we're just going to fuck them right back. Some of them don't even know that nine 11 even happened. Yeah. Like they did this amazing interview. I think it was on PBS. Um, they were interviewing even leaders within the Taliban. Like, hey, why Why are the Americans here? They're just like, well, we were just told that they showed up here one day and we're fighting them. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> like, they, they have, and they, this reporter, this investigative reporter, I can't remember his name, but he was even showing them pictures of the Twin Towers on fire. And some of them had no clue. And in this group of Taliban elders, one of them pipes up and he's like, oh, yeah, that was the attack um, that Osama bin Laden orchestrated. I'm talking about a group of people, dude. Mm-hmm. And you think about some of the younger generation of kids that have grown into the Taliban. A lot of them have no freaking clue that this shit's been, you know, well, what the origin of it is. Regardless of who's justified or not in this whole thing nowadays, um, it, it's kind of become something that's so discon- disconnected from the original intent of what's going on. Um, yeah, here's a good book for your reading list. So it's called No Good Men Among the Living. And it okay. talks about the history, not just, you know, the Afghan wars that you and I were involved in, but the history going back to the Soviet years. And it just talks about who the bad guys and the good guys are. It's a fluid situation over there, you know, and most people are just choosing what side to be on, who to fight for, who to fight against, strictly based off of, you know, what monetary benefit it's going to bring in their families. You know, am I going to be... Am I going to be able to protect my family better by being in the Taliban or the ANA or the Afghan police? You know, they, they yeah. just choose where to go. And, and, you know, that can have, you know, an untold amount of outcomes for certain people. But it's such a great book. And they tell a good chunk of it from the American perspective, too. Like why we went, you know, how positions have evolved over generations on motivations for why we still go there or whatnot. Uh, the the role that contractors play in it that was probably the most revealing you know most mind-blowing thing for me when i went overseas was to see the presence of contractors and yeah the book really really breaks it down and it almost makes you feel a little dirty (laughs) for being there and having been part of it but you know and and, and I realize these things because I, I spend a lot of time and I spent a lot of time in politics before the military and 
and I'm really dialed into policy and why things happen. Um, that was really hard for me, man, to be over there and wrapping up a mission. And it's like, crap, I just got shot at today. You know, mm-hmm. my crew just got shot at. And, and I think about why I'm there. It's like, man, this is hard. But mm-hmm. then I, I literally, I have to mentally just almost physically flip a switch. It's like, okay, back to the job. You know, back, back to the job. I can't keep thinking about all this political BS, even if I'm highly aware of it. But yeah, it's what, a, what did you do in, in politics? So I used to be a, a campaigner. I used to, you know, manage campaigns. Um, I used to be the House Minority Chief of Staff in the Idaho Legislature. Um, and yeah, so I worked within the Idaho Democratic Party for a little while. Um, and then it kind of happened by accident. I volunteered for a city council race for uh, TJ Thompson at the time. And, and from there, it just kind of kept evolving from one campaign to another. I became a volunteer coordinator, started managing campaigns. Um, and yeah, I did that for a while. And, but my goal was to still always be a pilot in the military, but I was kind of doing that as I finished my degree and it, you know, it was paying the bills. It, It was a good job, but Kind of like the comment I made earlier where it was literally, you know, sucking up my soul. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Basically, like, 80 hours a week was almost standard doing that job. Um, and there's a – you kind of see when people say politicians live in a bubble. Like, even if you're cognizant of that and you're aware of it, um, you you do get sucked into that bubble of just policy and everything. And you kind of lose touch of um, how some of these things affect other people on mm-hmm. the outside. Um, and you feel, you know, righteous in your, in, in your path, your goal. And, and you think you're doing, you're changing the world and all this stuff. But um, the, the, the ugly side of politics is, you know, there is a lot of special interests involved. There is a lot of money um, that drives the decisions that are made. And despite what you see on the news every day, there are a lot of good people in politics mm-hmm. that are in it because they they want to genuinely make a difference. But it doesn't always play out that way. Usually it's a lot of the you know, nefarious actors that are, you know, driven by securing as much power as they can and kind of leaving a lot of the good people in the dust. We were just having this conversation earlier today, Kevin and I, yeah. about how it used to be a you were a public servant and stuff like that. Now it's like they see power and that's what they're going for. And yeah. And, and a lot of people, here's the thing, like that, especially at the local level, there's still a lot of good people in politics mm-hmm. and even at the federal level. Um, the thing is, I, and I feel very genuinely strong about this. I feel like the media has given the idiots a lot of attention Yep, on both sides. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, Granted, you know, I just told you which side, you know, I, I mm-hmm. came from, but um, I think we've losing uh, or we've lost the ability to conduct civil discourse. For right? sure. And, and I worked with Republicans in the legislature and libertarians and you, you, you name it. Mm-hmm. I work with all of them. And I, I have always found a way to talk to somebody in a respectful manner. Mm-hmm. And it's like, hey, we may disagree on this, but have you tried to consider this point? Mm-hmm. And then I learned a lot from these guys, too, because, mm-hmm. you know, Democrats are not right about everything and vice versa. Mm-hmm. But today we're living in a very dangerous, um, just a dangerous mindset that one side feels like it knows everything 
and that the other people are just stupid and un-American and unpatriotic. And I'm like, yeah. holy crap. Like, how did we get here? Yeah. And it makes me really afraid for the next election. Yeah. Which we're coming up on. Well, real we quick. have a very egotistical yeah. government. So I like Graham Hancock, Hancock's idea, man. Like, put them all through a series of ayahuasca treatments and see <laughs> if you any of them even want to be in a position of power anymore. Their yeah. ego is going to change. Mm-hmm. Good point of view. I mean, yeah, no. No politician should have investments in the companies that are making the weapons that are profiting from the war, mm-hmm. right? Because now they're biased and mm-hmm. it should be an unbiased system. What do the people want? And I understand that it has to be an educated decision and not everybody is educated. And since they're not educated, well, persuade them through propaganda, which we do. Persuade the idiots through propaganda or the people have something to lose. Are you an illegal immigrant? Well, guess what? We'll help you out, but you got to vote for us, you know? There's a lot of ways to to get people to vote for the not not the best not the best reasons. Um, I think the country is just too big to go back to a fundamentalist idea, you know, like the like the way of a person sacrificing to serve. You know, I'm like I already have a lot of money. I'm going to sacrifice my time towards my business to yeah. to be a public a public service for four years. That's gone, and that's not going to come back. Um, so yeah, you got to just kind of. I don't know. Do the best we can. Yeah, no. And here's the thing. I, I think we should accept this. The United States will never be what it used to be when it was founded. Mm-hmm. It's just not possible. Um, it's like, I mean, I almost see it like the laws of physics. Like some, yeah. uh, like the state of matter will continue to evolve as it drives forward. Um, it, it, yeah, it's not going to be, you know, it's not never going to be what it was in that time. Um, you know, I, I feel like the, the goal of a civilized society is to create a society that's more just and accommodating for everyone that's in it. Because if I rolled up in 1776 right now, I'd probably get shot, you yeah. know? <laughs> so, like, you know, depending on who you ask, or if I hear somebody say, make America great again, it's like, relative <laughs> to what? Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, yeah, there were a lot of things about America that were great. Like, imagine living in the time of landing on the moon. How exciting would that time have been? Mm-hmm. Um but you drive down the street from NASA or wait, let's not even leave NASA property. You guys have seen the movie Hidden Figures. Yep. Yeah. There were these entire, like an army of black women in NASA who were totally looked over. You mm-hmm. watch even movies they make now about the space program, like the right stuff that's on Disney Plus right yeah. now. Mm-hmm. They don't even reference those women at all. Yeah. And we know that they were a big part of it. So, you know... My point is, our country, we're always going to have issues. And I, as, as much as I am fearful for November 3rd, I'm also equally optimistic mm-hmm. that people are finally, you know, when the fighting is over, they're going to go back to working together. I, I hope so. I, I was just having this conversation the other day with somebody about politics, and it's always a touchy subject yeah. politics is. I enjoy talking politics with people. I like to know why they think the way they think. Yeah. And like me, I didn't vote in the last presidential election. I Mm -hmm. couldn't bring myself to do it. I was not a fan of either. And I feel like if you write somebody in, that's, you might as well not vote. It's, yeah, yeah. I wish there was three parties in the debates all the way up to the end. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it'll get there eventually. I I hope so. I hope so. And I don't know if I would call myself a libertarian, but I have views on both sides. I, I mm-hmm. really do. And there is 
there is conservative things that I agree with, but there's also a lot of liberal things I agree with. Mm -hmm. And I think that's most Americans. I really do. I think it becomes a mob mentality where they see their group of friends likes Trump, for example. It's like, okay, I like him too. And I think people are afraid to say like, man, I don't agree with, with everything. And I don't think people should agree with everything. But yeah, that, that wouldn't be healthy. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah. And it's also like, I, I do plan to vote this time around. I think more people are going to vote this time around. Oh, they already have. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I know my wife said she sent hers off a couple of days ago. And I think there was a lot of people who the last election thought, oh, he's not going to win. So mm-hmm. why even try and then we saw what happened so they feel like they want to vote even then like somebody who likes a political candidate i don't like doesn't mean i don't like that person yeah yeah. there's a reason people believe the things they believe it doesn't make them a bad person and i wish and i think most people think that way and you don't look down on somebody for their political views i don't think if a person's whole personality is revolved around their politics they're kind of a boring person, I think. But there's more to life than politics. Oh, yeah. Well, you know what's funny about that, though? You Like, a lot of people focus on the cross-party turmoil, but there's a lot of infighting that happens within. Mm-hmm. I had, you know, people tell me that I was sexist for not supporting Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. and I was a Bernie Sanders fan. I'm like, wait a minute. You know me. You know who I am, what I support. How how is me not liking Hillary being sexist? Yeah, and we're talking Democrat on Democrat fighting. You know, yeah, or like Republicans. Like how many Republicans have fallen out with each other because one likes Mitt Romney and the other likes Trump? Yeah, or or like you know the the, the Bushes versus the Trumps or whatnot, and almost every single thing you can imagine now. And, and and again, like, there, there was a certain point where we had civil discourse and it went out the window. But it's it's okay to disagree on certain things, right? I think that's fine. But this is where I draw the line, personally. So, like, you and I, we can disagree on pizza toppings and shit, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm not dis- going to disagree on racism. No. You know? Yeah, there is subjects. Like, right. Yeah. So, so, like, that that's... I think people have to kind of start delineating what those things are Mm -hmm. and it's like hey we're all americans if we truly believe that then we should love each other equally 100 percent. but at the same time it's like we we can agree to disagree but when the things we disagree on start hurting other people Mm -hmm. that's where we have to be like okay this is where we draw the line and we have to protect our own Mm -hmm. like we were talking earlier you know um, and, and I think that that's my general philosophy on politics. Mm-hmm. If you're not willing to protect another person and to see that, hey, a certain people are being marginalized, let's mm-hmm. let's figure out why. At the very least, let's listen. For sure, no one's even willing to do that. No, because people. I, I think people well, are some people. Not some, everybody. Yeah. Yeah, well, some. not everybody can act. You know what I mean? And even if they want to act, they're not educated on what to do. They just like to complain because people. Th- mental illness, which has been on the rise for the last hundred years exponentially, which was predicted by multiple psychologists, by uh, Viktor Frankl. And it's been exposed exponentially. Exactly. Yeah. And so if you have mental illness because you're not outside enough, your, health, your 
you have a shitty diet, you don't work out, you're not finding things to give you meaning and purpose. You're just kind of like, yeah, you're working a, a whatever job, you know, you're eating like shit. And then so you develop mental illness and you project it on people. Because now because your life has no meaning, you attach it to things. I want to, I'm going to attach it to the civil rights movement. I'm going to attach it to, you know, the sexist movement, you know. And then so you start projecting your negative thoughts on everybody else. But really it's because you're not fixing your own shit. Fix your shit first. Get level-headed. Find out a plan. And say, hey, you know what? I really give a shit about everybody else and I love everybody. So what can I do to help them so that we have equal access for everybody? Mm-hmm. Get everybody on the same playing field. And then when everyone is on the same playing field and it's equal, let it go from there. If you don't succeed, that's because you didn't fucking put the work and the time in to do it. Mm-hmm. If someone else did, no matter what color, what race, or uh, gender they are, they do. It's like that's because they had the tools. But get everyone on the uh, try to get everyone on the baseline. I guess that is by giving them tools. Give everyone the equal tools. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But if you're if you're brought up, you know, in the '90s in the shittiest part of the Bronx, you don't have any tools. You're just right. trying to survive, and everyone is your enemy because they think you think they think they're better than you. Your starting yeah. line was a lot yeah. further back than the Fuck other yeah, person. Dude. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, yeah. Like, yeah, like you said, Morgan, about the line you draw. I I feel the same way. Racism is something that. Like me personally, my wife and children are minorities, mm-hmm. and, and people that say racism doesn't exist anymore, yeah, their eyes are closed because it does, or it hasn't affected them. I think, yeah. I think people of color are progressing, and they they do have more opportunities than, like you said, in seventeen seventy six. You know, but there's a long way to go, mm-hmm. and it's uh, I don't know. I think there's a difference between racism and ignorance. Yeah. I think there's some people who are just ignorant. They've never been yeah. exposed to people that aren't like them. That is hundred percent true. And I think they can learn. Um, it's and there. Maybe there's some people that cannot learn mm-hmm. and I don't know what you do with those people, but it's, Oh yeah. No, I, here's the thing. I hear comments from people from time to time and I'm not going to automatically go on Malcolm X on them, you know, <laughs> like I, I, I'm going to, usually I, I, I sit back and I think to myself, okay, this person's grown up in Gooding their whole life. They've never seen another black dude or whatever. Mm-hmm. I can understand why he made that comment. Whatever. Go back to what I'm doing. Or maybe we'll revisit the situation later. But that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. You know, some people just break out into straight <clears throat> confrontation without, you know, trying to take a step back. And it's like, yeah, a lot of it kind of goes back to being the bigger person, but but a lot of us just have a perspective. Mm-hmm. And like you said, I think most people are just ignorant. They haven't been, you know, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just they, they haven't been exposed to something. Um, and, yeah, you kind of just have to, and that's and that's hard, too. Like, you have to admit that, okay, I, I really, okay, what I said was wrong. I really don't know anything about this. But but the, the, the other the, the other side, you, so you have the offender, and then the offended has to be willing Depending on what it is, because like if somebody came up to my wife and says something stupid, I'd probably want to punch him in the face too. I'm just mm-hmm. being honest. Like, yeah. <laughs> it, it'll be hard to hold back. But the point is, like, the offended has to look at the offender. It's like, okay, I see what's going on here. Let me see if I can kind of salvage the situation. You at least try. Mm-hmm. But I think right now society, for the most part, is way past that. Yeah, yeah. I would hope so. People know, stick with to what they know, and. 
I'm going to contradict myself because I don't believe we need a massive army. I think we need a sharp army. Mm-hmm. You know, like we need our Greenberries out there doing their fucking job in other countries. I'm not about a big military presence, but having like a mandatory minimum service is also very beneficial because it gets mm-hmm. you out of your comfort zone. But I don't you think know? necessarily it would have to be military service. I mean, you could do uh, what's that? The core, the Peace Corps, yeah. Yeah, the Peace Peace Corps. Corps. Go, Mm -hmm. and like me personally, I've never been out of the United States. I would love to. And I think a lot of Americans have not been out of the United States. They haven't seen people different than like we were just talking about. Um, I mean, you can look around where you live, and yes, there's going to be different people, and you could learn something from them. There's a story I told Kevin. There's a guy that I worked with, and he was from Iraq. Mm -hmm. I had never had any experience with anybody from Iraq or the Middle East at all. And I was going to train him one day and my boss told me, you know, you're training him. And I was being judgmental, I would say, because I'm thinking, man, we're not going to have anything common. Mm -hmm. What are we going to talk about? We're going to be in a truck together for eight hours. And we get in the truck and we start talking and turns out we had tons in common. Oh, yeah. And we were about halfway through the day and I told him, I'm like, his name was O'Day. And I'm like, O'Day, I'm like, I got to apologize to you right now. I'm like, I was judging you before we ever got in this truck. And he starts laughing. And then he's like, I was judging you too. He's <laughs> like, why? He's like, because you don't look like the type of guy that would like a type of guy like me. <laughs> and we got a good laugh. We became really good friends. Yeah. And just the exposure for, that was four hours in, to somebody who had never been around. We had, a, we liked some of the same music. And mm-hmm. we had some of the same values and things like that. He came from a totally different part of the world than, than me. And we became good friends yeah. and I think that's where the exposure comes into play. And I remember talking to Kevin about that, who has dealt with Iraqi people mm-hmm. and he's like, Oh yeah. He's like, they're people. What's, what's yeah. the difference? We're all people, but you find yourself in that. And that's why that, and that's actually the point I was going to make about the minimum service. Not even necessarily having to go to another country, just go to basic training with people from other parts of our own oh, country. Dude, it's basic. <laughs> dude, my, it was weird. I mean, I never saw so many scared white people in my life because the, mo- the more scared someone is, the more hostile they are. When like in 38th AG, you know, and for bending and in basic training, the guys who are most aggressive want to fire everybody first are the ones who fucking quit and you go AWOL. They're mm-hmm. just, you know, and you find out, you find that out about people in general. Like, Oh man, like every time growing up, someone just wanted to fight you or get drunk and fight for a reason. It's the most scared person in the room. who's are insecure and they probably can't fight in general mm-hmm. anyway. And, my best friend, basically, ended up being this black kid from New York. I remember his last name was Sergeant, you know. And anytime someone would like start shit with me, he just fucking beat him up. Like this kid, he was like, because he was from like basically the streets, he could fucking fight. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't that big, but he was super dense. He just fucked people up in basic. Yeah. And so he always called me Som Som. Like you're my boy Som Som. He just <laughs> fucked people up. Mm-hmm. And so because I never had any black friends growing up, we had black kids at a school to play football with. Mm-hmm. You know, we're never really friends, and they're and they're always the kids who are raised by white people anyway. But this is like a kid who grew up in the shit in New York, and somehow became best friends. It's like, yeah. So I saw myself, and I was like, man, the cool thing is, I never judged him once. I never thought of anything different. Thanks to my parents for that, because I never grew up treating people differently. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but that's a great for people to get that exposure. You know, someone from Washington can be best friends from someone in Alabama. Mm-hmm. And be, you know, realize like, man, we're all the same. We're yeah. all fucking people. You, you know, you might have a little different background than somebody else. Different cultures, yeah. different culture and different values. Mm-hmm. But 
like we were talking about with politics, even yeah. if you are on two separate sides, you can find common ground somewhere. Yeah. Somewhere down, you can find common ground. And like you were talking about growing up, growing up in Idaho, there was not many black kids. No, mm-hmm. we, had, we had a few kids in school and I was friends with a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I was always been, I always root for the underdog. Yeah. And when there's two black kids in the school, and people don't want to be their friend because their skin color. Mm-hmm. I would go out of my way to become friends with them. I became really good friends with people that were completely different than me. Yeah. So I thought, and then you get together, you're not that different. Yeah, that's a, and that's a crazy thing. Like human beings, human beings don't realize how connected we are. You know, like it's literally, you know, not to be cheesy, but it's literally in our blood. It's in our DNA, mm-hmm. and. You know, the the way we're all brought up might be a little different, mm-hmm. but you think about it, we're all, you know, we all love our families. We're just trying to work hard to provide. Mm-hmm. You know, we like to have fun sometimes, we like yeah. to enjoy time, you know, com- each other's company. And you kind of bundle all that stuff up together. It, literally, it's only a matter of time till you s- spend time with somebody who's, mm-hmm. like you said, from someone else. And you realize, huh, like we're kind of the same thing exposure it's you know and, and it's sad that we fight you know it's it's sad i mean that's it's the reality we can't just be you know cookie cutter kumbaya all the time yeah. but you know i think actually this is a really good quote from george hw bush and i'm just paraphrasing it of course but but he said that the the only time that the human race will find a reason to come together is if we experience a common threat from the outside mm-hmm. you know he wasn't speaking of anything specific but yeah like you look at a i love this example but uh independence day the first one yeah you know they showed all these air forces from all over the world coming together and that's a crazy thought but you think about it you know it that common threat forced everybody to be like hey we can't we can't burn out like this like we got to fight for our common survival and I think some at some point in hum, you know in the future of our you know human society, we're probably going to experience maybe not an alien invasion, but it might be an environmental you know cataclysm or mm-hmm. something really major that's going to cause every government to come together. Yeah, and I think we're already kind of rolling down that path. So I, I was that's what was going to happen with the whole coronavirus thing. No, because you know? people went crazy for toilet paper and started fucking beating each other's asses. <laughs> well, yeah. It's it's insane to me because in the beginning <laughs> it it seemed that first like week to two weeks that everywhere in the U.S. was kind of under lockdown. I don't know how often you guys went to the store or anything, but I go to the store and everybody looked beaten down. Everybody oh, yeah. looked stressed, and it, I was really hoping like, okay, this is going to bring everybody together because mm-hmm. we're all experiencing this thing together, and then little bits and pieces of it became politicized different yes, ways. Yes. And I think combination, you know, of the media, which depending on what you watch is going to give you a different narrative and mm-hmm. all these things took us back apart again. And then other things that happened in the U S mm-hmm. with police brutality and things like that, that split people back up again. And it's so, so sad. It's, I just, yeah. I but wish that, people could find a common ground and come together. But that's why, that's why leadership matters. I'm about to get cheesy, but like the the, you know, when when people say leadership, you know, what does that mean? And 
really what I see it as is in the worst case scenario, what do you do to bring people together? And I'm not talking about anybody in particular, Mm -hmm. but you know, well, what I'm trying to get at is when, when the shit hits the fan and people come to you for guidance and you know, the response is, well, despite what the information, what the facts are, um, this is what I believe. And if you don't believe it, you're an American or something like that. Mm-hmm. To me, that's wrong. Yeah, that, for that, sure. that should never be the solution to anything. Um, and so, yeah, that's why words matter. That uh, I, I feel like that's the true purpose of leadership. Maybe not the meaning of it, but, but what do you do? to help others when when things go south yeah you know, not what, just when it's easy for you but when it's shitty for everybody yeah and what know. and what do you say to motivate a common purpose that didn't happen with mm-hmm. coronavirus no no not we, at all. we were just having that conversation as well yeah. but yeah. i mean there was a positive like i mean this is extremely localized but this is our neighborhood mm. like my daughter's birthday's in um april and so the neighbor got together because it couldn't have gatherings right so, like, on her birthday, a bunch of people dropped off, like, candy and cards mm-hmm. and stuff mm-hmm. for her. Yeah. And we did the same thing for other people. So, yeah. the neighborhood got together. It was like, hey, we can't have birthday parties, but let's still mm-hmm. try to make the kids feel important so they're not sad on their birthday. And every, everybody pulled yeah. together. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. yeah. you don't want to have negative ties to experiences, mm-hmm. right? So, we try to keep it positive. Everyone pulls together. Yeah. You know? Um, and hopefully, you can see that on a big scale if something happened, you know? If the aliens come. And I doubt, <laughs> yeah, I doubt the aliens would even be hostile because... <laughs> If they're saying the aliens are us, but mm-hmm. dude, at the exponential rate we're going right now, say four thousand years from now, and that, that that's not out of the the question. It's actually mm-hmm. not considering the probability of statistics. It's absolutely not. It's vast out of the universe, right? Mm-hmm. So say they they are us or develop differently than us. Maybe they didn't develop off the um, the brains we have. We still rely heavily on our amygdala. That's why we train the way we do in the army, right? Or in the Marines, they've sealed everybody, right? Um, so maybe they don't have that part of their brain like we do. They're wired differently. So we're like, hey, I'm going to be peaceful as fuck. And they come and land, I'm going to be like giving it hugs and stuff. And then it lands for real. And the alien comes out and talks to you. And before you know it, you're either running the other fucking way 100 miles an hour or you're beating the shit out of it with your fist, dude, <laughs> because your amygdala responded and you reacted before you could properly respond to think about what you were doing. And it was out of fear, mm-hmm. you know? So you can say, people can say all they want, like they're going to, how they're going to react to the situation. You know, if it's an asteroid, if it's aliens, if it's mm-hmm. Corona, yeah. but when your reptilian brain takes over, you don't fucking know what's going to happen. Cause you may re- respond extremely hostile towards others in that situation. Cause you can't control your own behavior. Yeah. Yeah. That makes um, sense. You know? So, if I were an alien, I'd be terrified of us. Like these fucking monkeys are beating everybody's ass. <laughs> I, I was just going to say they probably started to come here and saw the way things are going. Like, like fuck this. Yeah, they, well, that, that's why. Here. That's why I have the prime directive in Star Trek. It's like, yeah. hey, they're they're a pre warp civilization. They're too dumb. We're going to leave them alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. I think I think people can come together. I, I think yeah. we will, and I'm hoping after the elections and things calm down because yeah there are problems in in, mm-hmm. in the u.s but i think some of those problems are made bigger by the certain media networks and stuff like that and it sucks because the one thing trump said was fake news mm-hmm. <laughs> and 
Well, now, that didn't help. Well, no, no. I mean, pretty much anything he says discredits it. <laughs> and But to me, it's like that's one thing he got right because, gosh, like I said, no matter which one you watch, it will just push whatever you already believe in. Yeah. And yeah. I, that's not healthy. And I don't think our brains are made to ingest news 24-7. And well, that's the thing. People just shouldn't watch it. No. no like, we're, like, we're meant to do manual labor, and that's what we do to stay healthy. If anyone's listening to this and you don't actively do something physical every single day, you know, get up off your ass and do it because you are guilty. You are wired to be doing manual labor. I'm yeah. not saying you have to go nine hours a day building houses or doing a lot of, you know, manual labors do, but that's what we are built for. Mm-hmm. So be outside gardening, hiking, running, whatever it is you'd like to do and do it because that's going to bring back a lot of your sanity, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And coming from someone who worked in politics full time, it, we were always on the defense with, with media, you know, like always trying to protect our candidates and the representatives we worked for, uh, always having messaging, talking points ready to go. Like, like you, you have like the arsenal of things ready to fire away to deal with the media because they literally, they hang over you like vultures. Mm-hmm. And, and even, even the media that agrees with your side, you got to be careful with them too. Um, cause sometimes like your positions could be exaggerated in, mm-hmm. in, in a way that's like, Hey, I didn't quite mean that. Like, can you dial it back a little bit? But, but the thing is there's a human element in the media and even, even the most non-biased of them out there, like you look at the C-SPANs and the NPRs and all of that and the Reuters, um, associated press, like they're, they're just, they're who they are. Mm-hmm. Even then, you have to think about the fact that there's a human element there, and they struggle to maintain their non-bias element. It's because again, you're a person, mm-hmm. and if you see if you see a neo-fascist running down the street, it's 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 hard not to have a freaking emotional reaction to that. And here you are, like, all right, and uh, today on Johnson Street, we've got <laughs> these guys. It's like. That, that, that's hard to do. Yeah. But then you have the Fox News, the OANs, the MSNBCs, the mm-hmm. even CNN. Like, they used to be – see, CNN was different like 10, 12 years ago. Yeah. But, but, you know, but the thing is, there's truth in every narrative, and it's really up to you to figure out mm-hmm. what you dissect from that. Yeah. Right? And, and that's, the, that's the other hard part. But you can't – I don't know. There's always going to be bias. I think we have to just accept that. Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. it's up to the listener to take what they need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what's wrong the other day. Like, behind all the the pretty sweet gore, and there should be more titties in this, but there's not. But <laughs> the boys. Oh, I love that. The movie. meaning oh, in that I is, it. I like, watched it yet. it's very current. I mean, just even in the second season, just the the thing and the conversations he has, like with the, the, the CEO of... Uh, the company, um, mm-hmm. um, the Vought. Vought. Yeah. Yeah. Like the conversation he has on like the episode eight with him, it's like mm-hmm. extremely current. Like he's talking oh, yeah. about us right now, the way things work. He's like, basically he's like, yeah, but she's a Nazi. He's like, I don't have fucking time for that. Like, she's yeah, making I know. Me money. Yeah. She's making me money. You know, it, and that's really what the country is about. Like you're trying to have social injustice exposed, but then someone in power is like, yeah, but if it's working for me, then don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it's that's very current. <clears throat> and that's dude, that I love that last episode because yeah, the corporate heads they're condoning this garbage, this, you know, Nazi garbage and it's happening, but 
they're just like and, and and it was very he's like yeah but you know if she's it's helping the stocks and the shareholders and and i'm sitting there watching i'm like man that is that is exactly what's happening today yeah. and but the i was kind of laughing at this but when she uh when stormfront was talking to um homelander's kid you know telling her how there's you know white genocide and this stuff happening and homelander was like you saw he, he yeah. kind of raised his eyebrow like really yeah but what did he do did he rebuttal that no nah, he just let it happen because guess what her narrative doesn't threaten him mm-hmm. you know and so he let it slide but i think the coolest moment in that episode was when you know the all of the females are beaten up like kicking Stormfront's yeah. ass and yeah. it was probably the most american moment in the whole show <laughs> yeah because like she literally calls her like hey crap and she turns around and 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 they destroy her it was really amazing and i'm like see they realized a common threat they came together and they took it out they neutralized it so yeah, yeah. he's he's told me about the show i haven't watched it yet I, you have to I, watch i'm it. sure i will yeah it's we kind of just <laughs> that, that was very mean of us to kind of like oh, no, no, you know, we, we, we just spoiled the last episode but yeah, yeah you, I, i'm gonna check it out yeah you should still watch it so let's talk about your music yes. <laughs> no, dude uh, yeah we haven't Jesus. even gotten into that yet um how long do you think we've been going take guess an hour and a half that's fine what do you think? Hour and 20 any guesses two hours 140 Nice. Uh, this, is, this is our longest one so far, which is good. That's cool. Yeah. We have had requests to do longer episodes, well, <laughs> which yeah, I guess is I guess, good. Yeah. I guess that's a good thing. So you're in a couple bands. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both rock, rock genre, I guess. Correct? Yeah, for, at some form of rock. Yeah, yeah, heavy metal rock. Yeah. Did you grow up being a fan of rock music, or are you a fan of mm. other things as well? Or so, so we talked about where I'm from. So I grew up mostly on like you know salsa, reggae, you mm-hmm. know bachata, merengue, you know stuff like that. But uh, my dad was a fan of some rock music, you know, um, like some of the 80s hair metal, stuff like that. Um, now, granted, he he died when I was three. So my exposure to it was so faint. Mm-hmm. But I remember. So when we moved to the United States and I would be flipping through the radio stations when I was bored, every time I landed on the rock stations, I would get excited. Mm-hmm. And it was nothing necessarily crazy, like Third Eye Blind, you know. Like we're, yeah. we're not talking heavy, crazy stuff, but like I would hear Third Eye Blind or No Doubt, and I loved it. Like, man, this is so cool. But what really just blew my top off was when I heard Rage Against the Machine and Metallica. Mm-hmm. I'm like, holy shit, this is this is amazing. And then I started to discover, you know, Nirvana, Corn. Then Slipknot came around in 1999. Dude, like, that was it, man. I, I committed full. Like, <laughs> I, I still love all those other things, you know, like that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. Um, like, the first concert I ever played was a, or first show I ever played was a reggae. I was playing with a group of people. We just came together, did a reggae cover. Um, but yeah, no, I, um, that that's kind of how form that interest into rock and metal just cool yeah just happened organically what are your names of your bands uh so starting with the most active band uh, another life it's based here in boise uh then i have block inferno it's me and my uh, uh my buddy angel toro we um this band has been from a distance so he's in jacksville uh, i'm in boise mm-hmm. and 
it's kind of a studio project now. We've designed the music to where we can play it live if we ever had the opportunity. But it's just him and I. He plays the drums and the guitars. He does the vocals. I do the bass. I play bass in uh, another life as well. I've got a solo side project where it's just me. It's called M3K Coalition. M3K is Morgan 3000. So okay. it's just some cheesy crap I came up with in <laughs> high school. But, but yeah, so that project is... Um, it's like a fusion project between hip hop, rock, metal, um, and I've been doing that since like 2003. Okay. And so you know, I kind of just sporadically record songs. I collaborate with some people, and then my band that's no longer active is Sonic Destruction, but we still have stuff on Spotify, iTunes, whatever. Uh, and I think I think that's it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's yeah, really fun. Yeah. Obviously, we talked about that before too. Like, yeah. Uh, you know, played played with a bunch of guys over the years. Actually, not mm-hmm. really the same guys for a lot of years. Yeah, I played with the same guy, one guy for a lot of years. Um, but the kind of played with has changed because he's extremely outgoing. So he can always. It's so easy for him to get other people on board. Yeah. Um, and then right now it's just me, him, Brian, and John, um, who's another veteran. Um, and uh, and that's kind of. It's kind of slowed down right now because John's finishing up another. He has his own solo stuff, so he does it. He's finishing up another album right now, mm-hmm. um, and we're going to kick back up on where we were because I think we have quite a few songs, pretty much almost finished now. Nice, but um, yeah, dude, music such a great outlet. Like mm-hmm. um, I'll say in our last podcast, my biggest drumming inspiration was uh, um, um, fuck my ass, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Carter Buford, there we go, yeah. from uh, Dave Matthews Band. Oh, yeah. So yeah. fucking underrated as a drummer. Like, he's, he's amazing. Dude, like he, yeah. he plays everything. He does it just right. So by listening and playing a lot of that when I was younger, like teenager, and still even now, like, especially like the Buses Stuff album and mm-hmm. the uh, Satellites album or whatever, like being able to incorporate that in the metal and in the progressive metal yeah. is so much more interesting. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not some guy out there just – hammering away in the double bass the whole time that's yeah, just, yeah. in my opinion that is being fucking lazy unless you're using it for a specific reason mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. just in doing blast beats same thing you know you're just being lazy because you're not creative enough you know yeah no i totally agree like you have to be diversified and and that's why i like you know sonic destruction we don't do anything anymore but um when so i had block inferno and m2k coalition that was kind of my my two main things and then um, I was in Canada actually vacationing with the wife and this guy that actually did he 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 also works in politics he still does and he contacted me like we knew each other through the young Democrats back in the day anyway he, sh- he shoots me a message and he's like hey man do you still play baseball I'm like yeah I, n- I never stopped and he said hey check out my band we're looking for a bassist and I'm like okay so I, I checked him out and and it sounded pretty good. Um, and I just kept thinking to myself, man, do I really need to add another thing to my plate? <laughs> you know? and, but I went out and I jammed with those guys and it was instant chemistry. And uh, and Another Life is very different than the music I've, you know, I've done before. If you, if you listen to any of it, totally different. Um, metalcore, progressive, stuff like that. Um, but it, it was way out of my comfort zone. But I decided, you know, why not? Let's see. Let's take it step by step. And I ended up falling in love with it. And it was, again, totally different than what I was used to. Um, Do you guys have music on, like, Spotify stuff? 
Yep. Yeah, cool. absolutely. Yeah, and everything if you look us up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, we sure do. We got an album out. It's called uh, Diamond, um, and it's actually an acronym for for all the songs on, on the oh. EP list. Um, yeah, so we, we are writing new music now, and we have... Um, we have a show coming up on November 14th. It's going to be streamed on The Hive's uh, Facebook Live. And unfortunately, the band, we came together over this last year, and of course, COVID, mm-hmm. totally screwed everything. So we've kind of been trying our best to, you know, social distancing during our practices and stuff like that. And now things are, you know, I don't want to say getting better across the board, mm-hmm. but we're still trying to manage the logistics of trying to make a band work in the middle of a pandemic it's extremely difficult i could imagine yeah but like us starting this we started this during the pandemic and we're thinking man are we gonna have to are we people gonna want to come over and sit down and talk or so that's i mean i mean this this, is a perfect setting i made this table exactly six feet (laughs) for that reason yeah um and it's you can adapt you can adapt and Mm-hmm. as cheesy as that sounds adapt and overcome well no it's true. anything yeah. i mean you find a way to to make things work you know yeah no make it doesn't have to be a new norm but being able to be resilient to that adapt to it and when it changes it changes but if you're just gonna be that person who's freaking out at walmart over toilet paper <laughs> you just show everybody what you're made of yeah and it, you need to improve on yourself you know mm-hmm. yeah um, but you know what though this is the perfect time for content like mm-hmm. the last song, the Block Inferno, we put out in August. It was our first single of 2020. Um, it got the most plays of anything we've ever released, and and yeah, people are looking like this podcast. It's mm-hmm. yeah, like the the first episode. <clears throat> I was listening to this Mission Prep podcast and driving on the road, and it, man, it felt nice. I'm like, man, other than Star Talk and a couple others, I haven't really listened to you know neo stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, it's it's great and music, same thing people they're starving for content right now for sure there's no concerts happening and they just want to see something even if it's like lamb of god they did that that social distancing jam Uh dude that was so badass yeah Yeah. there's been a few like i know what metallica did one through drive-in theaters and stuff like that yeah people are finding a way to get get Mm -hmm. their content out there shit last sunday fucking crowbar did one and they're putting like a new set list from old stuff Mm -hmm. that's one of my favorite you know bands it's probably 2011 I got mm-hmm. I started listening to them in like uh, Kingdom of Sorrow which Kirk Weissing also sings in mm-hmm. as a guitar for my second deployment because the crowbar is just never got the credit just like down never got the credit it was due oh yeah the yeah. Noah album is one of the best albums in the, in the rock mm-hmm. genre ever made I hmm, think really? the whole album's good I need to check it out yeah Noah I mean uh, down the singers Phil Anselmo from um Pantera, you have Kirk Weinstein on the guitar. Yep. You have uh, Pepper Keenan from Crozen of Conformity. I mean, a fucking super group, right? Um, and then the bassist is from also from Pantera. Um, um, shit, whatever. Sorry, dude. Ba- bassists don't matter, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, brown, brown, uh, something brown. Um, yeah, I can't remember either. But, so uh, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. But now, dude, like, Crowbar had one. I was like, super stoked for that because, you know, and I've seen him live twice. Like, I took a piss right next to Kirk Weinstein. I was like a yeah. white horse or something. We so played some shitty place in Boise the first time there, you know, here in the last couple of years. And um, so I was like pissed next to him. I was like, oh, damn, dude, it's Kirk, man. And he's like, <laughs> he looks like he could be an actor for like Snow White, dude. Because he's like 5'7", stocky, like a powerlifter, big old beard, shaved head. Yeah. You know, just like a little, wow. you know, um, elf. But he's super, super nice guy, you know. Hmm. Um, 
Yeah, and it's a good time for content, you know? It's a good time to be creative. If you're going to be stuck inside, you might as well be playing a guitar, the bass, yeah. drums. Well, you know? I, I noticed, like, there's some live entertainment happening, outdoor stuff, social distancing. Mm-hmm. Like, Dave Chappelle's doing his comedy stuff on his farm in Ohio. Yeah, yeah dude, it'd be hard. Here's the thing, man. As a, I've played concerts. I've done, I've done tours. It would be so hard. Because like, here's the thing. A, a metal band, at least, I can't speak for the other genres, but... Our energy comes from the crowd. Yeah. And if a crowd's not moshing and going crazy and breaking <laughs> shit, like, I can't, I I don't know. It yeah. sucks. Like, yeah. I just turn into a little robot up there. I'm like, all right, let's just get through this set. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the setting. I mean, just from a listening standpoint, I never got into music when I was really young. I didn't like it. It was too loud for me. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was like a sen- probably sensory thing. Yeah. What got me into rock and metal was my dad driving me to the dump or to like go work on a friend's house or to go out of town. And he drives, he's always driven like the shit stolen. And so he's like fucking blasting like the black album from Metallica. <laughs> and all of a sudden I liked it. It was the setting, like kind of mm-hmm. being scared. Cause he's going so fast. <laughs> it's from the J one Oh five. And he's just like fucking hauling ass drinking his keystone light. Cause that was just Norman in the nineties. Still, you just drink and drive. That's what yeah, guys yeah. do. You know, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you're actually Kevin. You're the one that got me into rock music because I grew up on country from my parents mm-hmm. and like oldies and stuff. And yeah, hip hop. Yeah, my, my sister was big, big into hip hop, mm-hmm. and so I grew up on those two. And then when me and Kevin became friends in junior high school, he got me into like yeah, it, it, it was like hate breed. It was hate breed. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah when the Ashes Awake album came out, two four, we were like fifteen. Yeah, and we were yeah, yeah. and you. you got me into that stuff and there was some like metallica everybody knows metallica yeah. but yeah yeah you got me more dude you, you diversified my music yeah collection. one of the coolest shows i ever saw was hate breed live in daytona beach oh well i thought i was my ass was gonna get broken or something <laughs> it, it it was a brutal mosh pit and and right after them came otep oh man dude i was like man am i gonna survive this night it yeah. was crazy <laughs> and then they they were both opening for um uh, for no, uh, Otep was a headliner. Hate Breed was before him, and prior to that, it was a band called American Head Charge. I don't know if you know those guys, Mm-mm. dude. I thought I was gonna get my my face kicked in. It, it was amazing, <laughs> one of the best nights of my life. And uh, yeah, yeah, but Hate Breed, dude. Like, I don't know what it is because like we talk about uh, uh, we talk about the uh, you know diversity of like just bands and stuff like that. Hate Breed, their sound is not incredibly diverse. No, it isn't. But they fuck. But, yeah, but it's badass. Like you just yeah. feel like you're on this like raging adventure with you know. Yeah. And you just want to kick some ass in a mosh pit. Well, it's the That's, energy they came from yeah. the underground like punk scene in New York and like made it fucking heavy. Yeah. You know, um, where other people during post punk were almost going alternative, maybe like like Thrice or AFI. Mm-hmm. But then Hatebreed was like, oh, let's go heavier. Yeah. You know, and as I said, that the Rise of Brutality album, I was like, sharing it. This, this <laughs> album still fucks. Yeah. Dude. <laughs> like, I don't know, it does. No, I get excited when I think about Hatebreed. And, um, but you know, the thing I love about them the most is what they talk about. Yeah. They, they talk about some uplifting stuff, man. And like, and, and I think about like some of the struggles I've had in my life. And when I, whenever I feel down, I, I crank on some hate breed, dude, and it just motivates me to keep pushing. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it got me. Hate breed has gotten me through deployment, through flight school, through college the first time. It's uh, you know when I'm working out and I, you know, and and I feel unmotivated, I throw them on. You know, it's uh, 
Uh, they're really good, man. It's, um, it's amazing what some good music can do for you. Yeah. That's, that's what I like about, um, 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 God damn it, dude. Just edit this out. <laughs> this is why I need testosterone therapy so I can get my fucking memory back. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it. I'm going to leave it. No, um, the, the, uh, um, <laughs> dude, it's, good. it's a good point though. It's like, I don't want to come to you. I don't want to stop because it's a good fucking point, dude. What are you thinking about, Baby Shark or something? God damn it, <laughs> motherfucker! Um, that's, see, that, that's what's gonna bring people together. I think music. Look, yeah. at, look up the Baby Shark metal remix. I've heard like, it's so <laughs> ridiculous. But you have a baby, so I'm sure you hear. Oh yeah, all sorts of good music right now, huh? Well, dude, it's um. So not not so much because of my son yet, but um, so my wife's cousin, uh, she you know he he brings over his son sometimes and and he'll be like yeah you know let's watch this uh, like um, Halloween pumpkin thing and and I'm like wow like I didn't even know this existed mm-hmm. and just these kid things and then it, yeah but uh, one day it was a few months ago I looked up. Um, like they this viral video about baby shark and then it was a baby shark heavy metal remix and I'm like damn this is actually badass <laughs> yeah 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 it's, I, I have small children as well and they will uh, expose you to some some stuff you yeah. never even knew existed that's for sure and that's a weird thing yeah. my son is gonna grow up like I've got all my bass guitars you know hung up around the around my office and he's gonna grow up with that and and who knows what his interests are gonna be but. He'll probably ask me to play, you know, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. He's like, I got you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> how, old, how old is he? Uh, he's only three months. Oh, man. Yeah. So, yeah there's, there's a lot coming. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of attitude coming your way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I can't wait to introduce him to music. You know, and unfortunately, I don't, I, I need to figure out how to play some kitty stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and so I could. Well, I don't know. Like, my, my youngest son, he took to music really early still. He's yeah. almost six years old. Hmm. And he loves, he just loves music. And then my older son, some, some music he likes, but not like my younger son. It's crazy how different they are raised by the same people. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, maybe your son won't even care. Right. Hopefully he will. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> what, you know. do, what I think is important. I have a list, like a my big iPod. It's like shit. My kids need to listen to if I die tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Like if I die tomorrow, they need direction on music. I mean, I want, they need to figure out for themselves too. But they're, I've already got my daughter an appreciation of like old like Aerosmith, Led Zeppelin, Pink oh, yeah. Floyd. Yeah. Like without this set list on my iPod, what if they don't find that mm-hmm. and they don't ha- they don't get to experience that and they're just experiencing fucking Katy Perry or some bullshit, oh, yeah. <laughs> some yeah. trivial, <laughs> some trivial shit that's auto tuned. Yeah, yeah. You know, Taylor Swift's bitch ass, dude. Like I'm listening. <laughs> I like Bon Iver because Bon Iver, before he was Bon Iver, he sang for that blues band, um, the shouting matches. Mm-hmm. You, you showed me that. Yeah. They're, they're awesome. And so anyway, he has this new song with Taylor Swift and he sounds mm-hmm. great. And mm-hmm. then she comes on and it's like four different fucking voices she's using. Uh, it's like, yeah. can you not fucking sing? Like you, it's not authentic anymore. That's corporate pop music. Yeah. But if you want to make yourself feel better to listen to the Lady Gaga mashup with Metallica. Didn't know she that. killed it, man. Really? Oh, so good. Unfortunately, during the live set, they were having like sound monitoring issues. So they were having issues, but uh, in the lead up to that, they show him practicing, and she shows up in like this this thong with like fishnets or whatever. And Kirk Hammond was just like, "What the?" Oh. <laughs> His face was so priceless, and the other guys are like, "Oh, whatever, let's go with it." And uh, but it ended up sounding amazing, man. Like, cause she's oh. she's a true singer, right? Yeah, I'm yeah. not saying Taylor Swift can't sing, but but she's you know 
they, they, they've all kind of fallen victim to the corporate auto-tune mm-hmm. BS, yeah. you know, but like, but yeah, Lady Gaga and Metallica, respect, like 100%. I think I saw yeah. them perform live at some award show last year. That, that's the one I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay. I saw that. And yeah. that, yeah, she, I think she is one of those that's, who would ever thought we'd start talking about Lady Gaga on her podcast, but I think right, she's, a, she's an artist, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I like, so, I like the empowerment she gives to, you know, um, you know, the gay community. Yeah. You know, she's yeah. like, nah, dude, like, be proud of who you are. Like, mm-hmm. we're a collective group. Like, mm-hmm. don't be ashamed of anything. Like, no, nah, she's got a good message on that, too. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, clear your mind of that Taylor Swift poison and, yeah. and listen to that. That'll, <laughs> that'll make you forget. Yeah. No, we have a, I mean, you could have so many opinions on just music. Like, you make a whole podcast out of that. Mm-hmm. You know, a guy that played guitar with us for a while has his own podcast here locally. Mm-hmm. And then they wanted me and John and Brian on, but Brian's been on it. And apparently what they do is they have the band on and, um, they all like play like one or two selections, their own songs. Mm-hmm. And then everyone at the table at the podcast, like breaks down what they thought of the song, yeah. like analytically. And then they do the same thing with beer. They all bring their own beer and mm-hmm. they take some, drink some and they break the beer down. Like, so that's be, mm-hmm. that'd be a really interesting podcast to be on. Meet the high school with them actually. Um, yeah, that, that sounds super cool. But on on that, so you were talking about a playlist for your kids. So it just just reminded me as we're talking about it. I I discovered this thing not too long ago. It's called uh, Putumayo World Music. So it's a record label, Putumayo. They they have these mixes and they showcase music from all over the world, like from every culture. They they've got them all. They even have a song from my island, which it blew my mind. So. Um, they have this compilation called Putumayo Kids, and I have it playing on the Amazon Alexa really low in the background. That's like me trying to introduce them to the world. You know, mm-hmm. like, hey, listen to the sounds of the planet that you live on. And, yeah, it's really cool. You should check it out. That is yeah. cool. No, that's, like, even last week I brought up to uh, um, Maroney about Deep Forest, that Boheme album Deep Forest has from, like, 1993. Hmm. It's still fucking awesome. Like, I was like, dude, do your wallet with the, do your ayahuasca trip listening to that shit. Because <laughs> yeah. D Force, like, the idea is he goes around the world and records the people and he yeah, does synthesizes yeah. all the other stuff to it. So he plays around it, you know, mm-hmm. and edits it and mixes it. But that sounds bad. Well, that's, that's something mm-hmm. like music from different cultures with my wife is Mexican and mm-hmm. I've grown an appreciation for Mexican music, like yeah. Spanish speaking music. I don't understand a word they're saying, <laughs> but some of it. Like, I don't know. I, I don't know what they're saying at all, but I've yeah. I, I, I learned to enjoy it. It's yeah, kind of cool. Ask her about the cumbia kings. Yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure she knows. Yeah. And then my, my mother-in-law, who lives with us as well, she's she's always listening to, to, to music. And, yeah, like I said, I don't understand it, but mm-hmm. I, you don't have to. Words are everything in music, you know. It's yeah. the music itself. That is, is very true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, sometimes I... I I'm a sucker for really good lyrics as well, but but there's some good beats and stuff yeah. that hit you. And well, and some people are wired differently. I'm one of those people like I I can't pick up on lyrics. Just like I don't remember quotes from comedies or movies. I have to listen to a ton of times to memorize it. Mm-hmm. But I can memorize a drum line or guitar line mm-hmm. and go fucking play it. Yeah. But it it's like it's it's weird. Like it takes me forever to memorize or even understand what they're saying in music. Yeah. Like it's kind of like I'm a little deaf or dumb to it maybe. Mm-hmm. So, or certain people like like you, the first time he hears a song, he knows the lyrics or memorizes yeah. the comedy lines. I'm like, fuck, yeah. dude, that, how do you know that's all this? Really good. I've always, <laughs> you know? I've always had this. I don't know if it's a talent. It's kind of a useless talent. But like, I can hear the first 
second of a song, and I'll tell you what it is just yeah. right away. There used to be this country station, and they used to have this competition thing every day where you'd win CDs or tickets or something, mm-hmm. and it was called Pick That Lick. Oh. And they would play the first like two seconds of a song, and if you were the first caller to call in and get it right, <laughs> I would call in every. I'd call in before they even played the song because I knew I would know it. Yeah. I just for some reason my brain works that way, mm-hmm. and it got to a point where they had to make some rule where you could only win once a month. Because <laughs> yeah. I was winning tickets and CDs and oh, wow. all this stuff. Yeah, that's with the lyrics stuff. I remember that stuff, but when it comes to the actual music portion of it, I play a little guitar. I'm mm-hmm. not, not good at all, and then my Kevin. He can hear a drum beat and play it. It's totally different wavelengths of the brain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you guys want to keep going? You want to cut it off? Because I have to pee. You can keep talking. I can run in and pee. Yeah. That's okay. whatever you guys want. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'll, I'll be back. I got, I got time. So yeah. I already got my homework done. My, my Diffy Q got it knocked out. So. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those annoying assignments that are due at 1159. Yeah. On a Sunday. I'm like, Jesus Christ, man. Like. Yeah. Like we have a life too, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I feel I still feel like they are pulling back a little bit because mm-hmm. even like in the EM theory, it's not like an assignment every week. Yeah. It's like every like eight days. Yeah, it's like yeah. kind of pushed off a little bit, you know. And uh, yeah, it's been weird. But I mean, honestly, all my time is going into computational physics because astrophysics mm-hmm. four hundred five is not not put together very well. Considering yeah. Daryl Nakem. Mm-hmm. I don't know what is going on. Even me and Justin talking about it. I was yeah. like, is it just me? And he's like, no. He's like, he's like, what's going on? Like, we've only had two assignments. Mm-hmm. You have these long ass, like, he'll cover a lecture over like one or two problems and yeah. just keep on talking and talking. Mm-hmm. And I'll see like Justin on his Zoom because he always, we always have, there's only six of us in that class. So everyone has their yeah. video on. Mm-hmm. I'll see like Justin just like <laughs> fucking passing out. <laughs> The other day, Persona was passing out. Yeah. She's like, <laughs> and I'm just like, dude, what is going on? And then oh, the test man. didn't cover any of that. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, that, I hate that more than anything. And so you're like, what? And so I, don't, I think we all still did well, but mm-hmm. it was closed note, closed book. So I was like, Oof. but this isn't what we covered. Yeah. Other yeah. than like Gene's mass, like why is it inversely proportional when you have um, temperature versus density. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because when things are too hot, it won't coalesce. You can't make matter. They have to be cooler. So as it becomes more dense, yeah, that, you know, that affects us greatly in aviation. You know, you think about um, so we call it density altitude. As uh, as the temperature increases, air molecules, you know, they get excited and they move apart. They mm-hmm. they move faster and they they spread out, and that that's a problem for aircraft. Because now, not only do we have to, so you have to compensate for that in different ways. Um, either have larger wing area or have higher velocity or something to make up for that loss of atmospheric density. So, yeah, that's, uh, it's cool. And you know what I've been enjoying about physics is I can tie it back into my aviation background. Because yeah. there's these little things and it helps me correlate faster, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's no. super cool. Yeah, it's nice when you can actually use it because you're excited again. That's why I still like the Astrophysics Club. Which I haven't done anything this semester with. Yeah. Because I'd be burned out at the end of the week. And if Friday at 4 o'clock would come around the, the meeting, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, this is why I'm here. This is awesome. Like, yeah. I always bring something to the table to, to talk about. Yeah. And it would, like, re, rejuvenize ju, me, rejuvenate me for like <laughs> over the weekend. Like, this yeah. is why I'm doing this. This is awesome. You know? Yeah. Um, you gotta have that versus uh-huh. just pounding it week in and week out. And then you, it, it's oh, like, yeah, it's like semantic state satiation, but of school it loses its meaning after a while. Oh, yeah. Know? 
But, you know, that's what's amazing about studying physics is you can tie it in to just about almost anything else in life. You know, like me in the aviation industry or or what if you're a chemist or something or hell, what if you work in construction management? Like like physics will help you solve problems you never dreamed of. Yeah. And, and that's why like like physics 309, well, you know, we took in the spring, you know, it you know, you hear quantum physics and it sounds so super cool and high speed. But when, you know, every week that we kind of start diving into things a little more and more, it, it just blew my mind every single time. And that's why I love physics. Like, it, it would not have interested me to go into, like, civil engineering or something. Yeah. Like, I see, not that there's anything wrong with it, but for me personally and what I'm interested in, I just saw no practical application for that or at least what I'm trying to do. Yeah. But yeah, with physics, it, it lays down the foundation for the universe. And especially and, astrophysics, because yep. by taking astrophysics, you have to understand all other physics. Yes. This isn't just physics engineering. This mm-hmm. is astrophysics. So you get you go you cover a bigger base. Yeah. So it's, which is beneficial, you know. And yeah, quantum physics is cool. Like the, you know, I have enough books on it, like, you know, um, like Isaac Asimov's, you know, understanding physics and all those, mm-hmm. like I conceptually already, I didn't learn anything new conceptually. Like I already get all that, you know, like yeah. 87% the speed of light, you double mass, you divide length by one half. Right. Mm-hmm. It was just learning how to run the integral and all the other problems, you know, yeah. for probability. That was, that was the cool part. Like learning to run run myself through the equations mm-hmm. versus just being handed them, you know, yeah. in a book, like that's yeah. the equation, you know, uh, being able to get your hands on them, you know, and feel like smart, not having mm-hmm. the imposter syndrome. Like I feel like I have, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. like I don't belong here. Like I'm waiting to get to that one class that breaks me. And then I'm like, I'm too dumb to be here. <laughs> and so far it hasn't happened yet. So I'm like, ah, maybe I am okay. Maybe I am at least of average intelligence mm-hmm. because I'm getting some of this. You well, know? you know, physics, it's a lot about perseverance. Like I remember um, when we were doing that problem about the equipartition theorem and it literally took up two whiteboards, me and my buddy, um, uh, Dustin were working on it. And it was just like, you know, we had a lot of road bumps trying to work through that massive integration, but yeah, it's kind of like, okay, we've been here for three, four hours. But, you know, let's, I'm going to go get another coffee. I'll be right back. And we'll just keep pushing through this thing. And by the time we were done, yeah, we took up like two, three whiteboards and, and we had the right answer. You know, we, we, we showed the proof of that theorem. And, and yeah, it's, it, it, it's just a lot of fancy algebra is what I call it. But, you know, when you start kind of like what we're doing in computational physics now, um, one of the first homework problems we had, uh, we... We're trying to figure out um, the velocity and distance of Halley's Comet at its um, uh, at its periapsis, I think. So at its lowest point of its orbit around the sun. And so you're taking all you know some of these constants, like the math, um, like the math of mass of the sun, um, and you're plugging in just uh, some basic orbital mechanics. Like, okay, at its highest point, it's here. At its lowest point, it's here. Let's figure out the velocity. And while that may not be a super big deal, but learning how to apply that in, in the program we're using called Python to run these computations, like in a blink of an eye, and figuring out not just for a problem like with Halley's Comet, but some of the other things that we've been doing this semester, um, where you're presented with a problem, 
here's a physics problem. Here's a blank canvas. Make it work like that. That shit's fascinating. Dude, to me, I love it. Not being a good programmer, it's like someone tomorrow being like, hey, I want you to go explain this equation, this physical equation um, to someone in Kuwait. So you're going to have to learn Arabic overnight and go write it all in Arabic. I'm like, oh, fuck my ass, dude. <laughs> like, that's what it feels like to me. Like, yeah. you need to go take something you pretty much kind of understand and write it in a new language that you don't have a good foundation on. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's because I would say at this point, we like I, I teach physics 111 lab at Boise State. And so almost every every night I ask people like, hey, was there anything in the pre-lab you didn't get? And they'll say, yeah, there was this one problem. And, you know, it would be, you know, uh, trying to prove that that this equals that or whatever. And they kind of missed a few steps in the algebra. And so, you know, you break down the math and show it to them. And I was just telling Kevin the other night. I remember being at that level a few years ago and and struggling with it, and now I'm teaching it. And so the the thing that's cool is, you know, with with physics, you kind of keep progressing on and on and on, and you start getting to some of these more difficult areas, <clears throat> and and eventually you're going to get to a point where you can explain this to other people. Or with programming, um, like Kevin just said, we we at this point have a fairly decent foundation in physics. Like I'm not going to say I know as much as our professor who's a, uh, as a, as a doctor and she's an, she's an astrophysicist straight up. I'm nowhere near that level clearly, but I feel like I'm starting to be at the level where I have a general understanding and then it's like, okay, um, now we're going to program it. I'm like, Oh shit. (laughs) You know, like, I don't know how to do that. So it, it's kind of opening up this whole new realm of, you know, how to do physics. That yeah. There was two things I was, and I know he's listening. Me and Joey were just talking about the other night. Um, we were talking about, um, what's it about? It was like free fall. Like when mm-hmm. you're, you're free falling around a curve because your velocity. Yeah. You know, um, just like in aviation, I, I don't know if a lot of people ever explain this, like, if you're at an altitude of 30,000 feet and it says you're going 500 miles an hour, mm-hmm. you're going much faster than that. Well, yeah. So, yeah, you're, uh, we're talking, we're just talking about air molecules just now. So, like, the, the less dense the air is, it, your, your rho value within the lift equation, you decrease that rho, something else has to make up for that so that you can maintain that lift that you're trying to create. So, you fly faster to ride on those air molecules and produce the same lift you were before. Now, here's the cool thing, um, not just temperature, but the more you increase in altitude, um, the less dense the air becomes. So you look at a lot of these jet aircraft, um, jet engines are made to operate very efficiently at high altitude, high speed. So you're, we have this thing called a pitot tube. It's a, it's a little sensor that reads ram air pushing against it and it tells you how fast you're going. So. If the air is less dense, there's less air molecules pushing on that pitot tube, right? You're going to have to travel faster to get the same indication you would get at 30,000 feet than you would at lower altitude. Right. And that's showing you the physicality of, and again, like if you're showing like 200 knots at 30,000 feet and 200 knots at 100 feet, you're traveling way faster than 200 knots up there. Yeah. Like why do you physically? Yeah, you're getting to SeaTac in 45 minutes. It yeah. takes you 10 minutes to get to altitude to get to that velocity. Then you're slowing down, you're increasing elevation. 
you're getting in 45 minutes because you're not actually going at the speed that you think you're going much faster. Yeah. That's where you get to that altitude. Your actual speed across the ground is much faster. So, so yeah, kind of, you know, having that understanding is critical, but yeah. But yeah, so when you start explaining concepts like, you know, what is an orbit? Like you're falling around a body, a celestial body, fast enough to continue falling around it without falling back into the ground. That's like the most basic way to explain an orbit. Um, and it's like, no, you're not just floating. Your, your lateral velocity is fast enough to keep falling um, around yeah. or to keep traveling. And, but, if you're, and if you're falling off of a skyscraper and you're moving down... Mm-hmm. Are you accelerating? Because the acceleration is 9.8 meters per second squared. So every second you increase by 9.8 meters in velocity. But are you accelerating? No, you're actually in free fall. The people in acceleration are the people in the windows observing you fall mm. because the normal force is pushing up. They're accelerating upwards. You're in free fall. Uh, yeah. So that's the bit, when you start getting you know along in physics, you start understanding things that some that might blow people's minds. Like, yeah, you're not accelerating downwards. You're in free fall. The people accelerating are sitting in the windows watching your ass. You guys <laughs> yeah. might, might as well be uh, singing in Spanish right now. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm it, lost, but I do find it interesting. Yeah. And another cool one. Actually, this is what me, this is what me and Joe are talking about. I just remember. So, talking about the speed of light, which may just be a constant right in a simulation. The simulation can only pro, can only compute this fast. So, it's that's why it's, that's a constant. Um, things that gain mass, right? I said are going fast. Things go faster. They're gaining mass. Photon is a massless particle. That's why it also has this constant property. Mm-hmm. And it's not just C. Many things have that. That is a speed that is given to many things like just gravity, gravity waves, right? It, a lot of things on electromagnetic spectrum fall, follow that pace, right? A C pace. Um, they can be slowed down around giant masses. That's why light bends or around masses, the heavier it is, the slower it can move time, like in a black hole. You slow time down, you're bending more light. Um, but a to a photon, if it had eyeballs, we were talking about the, the creator, right? If the creator is made of light and you are all made of light, we're talking about, you know, the death and everything. And it says the creator sees all, the creator knows all. Well, so does a photon if it had eyeballs, because if you're going C. And when he says C, he's talking about three times 10 to the eight meters per second that's very fast yes okay. sorry the c is a constant yes it's the the, the concept so i go so, p for like two minutes and you know, get all science on me so if you're the faster you go relative to somebody else another observer which is always relative to any observer third party first party second party you know if you're watching a spaceship you're watching earth and then you're from a third position right that's real it's everything's relative but say you're in the position of a photon. Well, it's the faster you go, the more things are going to slow down. If you are going C, you are at the constant, meaning everything is stopped. But since space and time are completely intertwined, so does time. Time stops, space stops. So there is no space and there is no time relative to a photon. If the photon had eyeballs, it's it would look at the entire universe and everything in it as a little single dot on a pen. Mm. Because it doesn't experience yeah. time, doesn't experience space. So it, a photon doesn't say like, oh, I'm traveling across the universe. I'll be to the next star in 8,000 light years. No, it's there instantaneously hmm. because it has no perception of time or space. So if the creator is light, well, sure, why not? Because it sees and knows everything all at the same time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it sees everything, you know, if you eyeballs. This is completely like cartoony, hypothetical, but... Mm-hmm. 
just to get your idea wrapped around that, you know, and everything is relative, you know, but it is amazing to think about though. Yeah. Super fun. Like just mm-hmm. thinking about what happened before the universe. Cause another fucking crazy concept. This is something you got to think about when you're like up at night and the room is quiet. So you can really just focus on it. Say asking what was before the universe is like asking a fucking retarded question because it, it doesn't make sense. There's no such thing as time or space. But say there's a probability. A probability is something will happen and the universe sparks out of nothing. That probability is so ridiculous of a number, you know, it's like 10 trillion, trillion, trillion times what the existence for our universe will be, which is already an order of trillions and trillions of years. Mm-hmm. But since there's no such thing as space or time, it happened over an infinite amount of time and it happened all at the same time. So instantly at a snap of the fingers, it happened but it was also infinitely long at the same time because there's no such thing as time. But that's the thing. Space time is something that we perceive from our local standpoint. Yeah. And, you know, you think about someday when human beings start to, you know, expand across, you know, even the solar system, the way that, you know, future Martians, you know, humans that become Martians when they will experience space time will be different than how we do it on earth. You know, just, just by the nature of our, proximity to the sun compared to theirs the velocity yeah. that they travel compared to the velocity we travel the masses of our own planets and stuff like that all of that affects our local perception and movement of space time it's all in your head yeah yeah some people see a mirror and they see they're fat and other people are like no you're not we're like we're so rudimentary in our perception that yeah we're everything if the moon wasn't there our perception would be different on time mm-hmm. you know and if the moon wasn't there i wouldn't be here to be honest with you well, but yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a huge role Let's watch this new video. Do you, ever, do you watch Melody Sheep's videos on YouTube? Mm-mm. No. They're the fucking coolest videos I've ever seen. <laughs> so the newest one he did was on the three ways I think the moon formed. You know, one was the impact. The second one was the fact that the impact was so big it pulverized everything into just dust. And the third one was that uranium was so rich it under the Earth's gravity it got pushed in and there was a nuclear explosion. <laughs> Just blast everything out. That's funny. Um, Did they talk about the rogue planet capture concept? No. No. The reason why is because the moon is so close in... A geophysicist had to explain this, but it's so close in properties to our own Earth. It Mm -hmm. could have just been a a simple collision. Yeah, yeah. Because it it was as if it had been pulverized into dust and had to recollect as matter. Yeah, yeah. Because it's too close. And another one he does is... It gives you a time scale on the rest of our universe. It's 30 minutes long mm-hmm. and it exponentially increases. So at first it's like every hundred years, every thousand years, and mm-hmm. it's going by an order of every trillion years, just so you get to like the black hole era, the degenerate area era. You know? Yeah. This is starting to sound more familiar. Yeah. It's melody sheep. And he, they're really good. He puts things, yeah, people's yeah, voices yeah. behind them. Okay. There's yeah. grid music behind it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I recognize that. But yeah, you bring up another point there. The, the universe will eventually die one day. It's not infinite. It's, it's finite. Entropy. So, mm-hmm. As yeah. is everything. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You guys ready to wrap it up? Yes. yes. All right. Well, hey, thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you. You, I you really didn't disappoint. You are a very interesting dude. Well, you get, you get a, lot, a lot going on. And well, no, you guys are equally as interesting. This is probably one of the most fun conversations I've had this in a long been, time. Yeah, this yeah. has been, I, no offense to our previous guests, but this has been my favorite conversation we've had well, so far. Yeah. This has been really cool. So. I'm honored. Awesome. I'm, I might, uh, we'll talk logistics after. 
But, all right, cool. Well, yeah. so your bands, you want people to check them out, I'm sure. Um, yeah, um, Another Life is uh, A-N-L, uh, Alpha November Lima, so A-N-L, band official. And Block Inferno is just a Block Inferno. And you can find us on just about every social network and everything else. And, um, yeah, Amphrey K Coalition Sonic Destruction, if you're a little bored. So, cool. Yeah. And I'm cool. guessing don't go searching your social media because your stuff's private. So. Uh, yeah, some of it is. I'm on, I'm on, you know, a lot of things and I, I love social media, but cool. yeah, I'm easy to find if you really want to find me. So. Perfect. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thanks, man. Yeah. Appreciate you guys. You too.